Okay, so I'm going to just get this bloody show on the road and say, welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I am indeed Jimmy. You had to think about it, though. I saw it in your eyes. Hello, I'm Sheppy. <laughs> and, uh, we are the What If podcast for movie sequels and prequels and spin-offs and extra TV seasons and what bloody not, Sheppy. And, uh, <laughs> and today, I think... Uh, we, we all want to know a little bit about Fools and Horses from you in a second, sir. But oh, I have a couple of books of admin. Admin, no, that's oh. true. I want to give a bit of a shout out to Dan Tromp from Britain, who's a Brosnan fan and has reached out and just given us a, a hello via the interweb, which is lovely of Dan. Thank you. Hello, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> and that was through shoulderspod.com. If you want to reach out to us, please just uh, feel free to jump on our website or reach out through Insta or wherever you want to reach out to us from. We have had ships. I just wanted to let you know we're approaching our 2,500 download, which is lovely. So thank you for all the support, peeps. And well, it took a long time, so I hope you appreciate it. <laughs> what about my keyboard? <laughs> How many different, uh, you know, yeah. are you using? And interestingly, each like ID photo is me in like different get up, like as a Mexican or with a massive beard for no reason. I could have just left it blank, but I chose each one like as a, a policeman, uh, a Victorian flower seller. Yeah. But there's Good stuff. pressure in each one. Just, just yeah. Drop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not it posted on. It is me in the different things physically. It is I'm just doing the same expression. Yes. So I'm glad we got that cleared up finally. Um, good stuff, Jimmy. And the, the final bit of this before we get to the real bits of Fools and Horses and then, of course, the, the pitches and the movie that we're focusing on today. Um, we've had 100 in the last month, which is amazing. And, um, you know, more, more pod had a big surge, which is lovely. So, uh, yeah, really, really happy. So thank you, everybody, for the support. 100 in the last month is a pretty, pretty big boon ship given we've taken our foot a little off the gas which is lovely so people are getting into the back catalogue so got to be well um, that's lovely so well cheers well i don't know if many people have listened to the um the spoof one but i'm i think your one specifically is very good on that so there's a little shout out to a little ignored duckling because we titled it spoof but it's actually you know we came up with some quite good pictures i think so there you go there you go. There's well, one for the There's your segue to bloody ops, isn't it? Really, if you want to have a quick chat about that, because I can, I, I still try and think about the bloody title I came up for that one. But it was something like Interconstantination and Mofu. I can't remember what it was, but it was something. It was very funny. good, though. <laughs> yes, it was a tongue twister for sure. Yes. <laughs> the Nolan ripoff. And uh, yes, you've done op, eh? Uh, I did op in the IMAX. Um, I was a little bit to the side and a tiny bit too close. So I regretted just like, I, I, I'm out of touch. I haven't done an IMAX for a while. It's just, I forgot. Back seat is best. Back row, all, all night long, centre um, is best for IMAX. But I'd sort of forgotten. So I was sort of just off centre and I was a bit too close. But you adapt very quickly. Very good experience. Wonderful. I said earlier about not often emotionally engaging with any Nolan film, with the exception of Memento. Um, and so, uh, maybe a little bit prestige. That's generally it. Maybe a little bit more Batman Begins, but you know. Um, but generally, they're not. But Oppenheimer, which Oppenheimer, which is interestingly, you know, it's I don't know for whatever reason it, it, it engaged me emotionally, and 
it was great and I, I loved the experience. What I wanted to say was in the scene, which keeps cutting back to where Op is he's, he's taking the piss, he's doing a bit of a Noel Coward, Oscar Wilde type thing, and he's he's ripping into RTG D a little bit. Robert Downey Jr. Um, and it cuts back to it and it's like, ah, oh, now I hate him, I'm Solari, and that's great. Um, but every time it cuts back to it, and all the way, every time you see that scene, Killian Murphy, to me, he's 100% doing a Daniel Plainview impression. And he's, and like, it's like take 19 or whatever. And Nolan says, hey, do, do one as Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood. And he does this, like, I think you would like a sandwich. And I'm like, sounds like he's doing a Daniel Plainview. And it keeps coming back to it. And every time it does throughout the rest of the film, to my ear, that, and I've only seen the film once. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what happened and, and Nolan liked it and kept it. And, uh, but who knows? Who knows? Um, but anyway, maybe you can only hear it if you're sitting in an IMAX just off center in the middle. And then it's, that's how Nolan designed it. He's out to get me. So, but. You're right. Well, there's some very interesting stuff that I think will really only pop on second view subjectivity-wide, isn't there, around whose perspective you're seeing it from. And and I think that's a very, very legit read, Sheps, around we're definitely seeing it a little bit first time around anyway from RDJ's view, and he's being a bit of a see you next Tuesday. So the plain view holds, mm -hmm. right? And the kind of the whole... Right. It, it's got a good little twit, you know, tete-a-tete -tete with the... Just the lowly shoe salesman, eh? Just the shoe salesman. Yes. Like that, all that sort yes. of stuff. Like, yeah, and yeah, he mentions yeah. it later and all of that. Oh, it's brilliant. Oh, I loved it. It's, uh, I mean, I don't want to do a Star Trek Generations and come out of it and say it's the best one, or even a Jurassic Park saying it was better than Jaws. That was a bold statement. But I don't know, it's right up there. And I will say also that, I don't know, I don't want to rub it in because I know you didn't get a chance to IMAX it, but that experience, you know, it's really stayed with me. And I think that played a part in it. So seeing it again on my TV will be, I almost you know, don't want to. So it's like, I can only see it in IMAX now. It's like, you can't watch Aliens after seeing Aliens Special Edition. It just doesn't work. So so there you go. Um, but I liked it. And I assume you liked it. I did, Sheps. I thought it was, <laughs> and it's growing and growing and growing on me. It really is. I thought Killian was amazing. And I sort of just feel a bit invested in him. I don't know why. He reminds me a little bit of my older brother, Ollie. And I just really like him as an actor. He's got good charisma. I love Peaky Blind. Yeah. He carries that. Yeah. And like just, he, I, I just think he's brilliant. And I'm so chuffed at what's happening for him with the film and everything. It's really cool. And my God, like, it, everybody's brilliant in it. Sound, I've never yeah. heard it sound like it. You know, I just never yeah. heard it. But like, it was so cool. And yeah, it's just sort of really... I, I just think there's something really interesting around the way he does frame it, particularly that scene, like you're saying, Sheps, on what I just need to see it again. I'm thinking going to save it for an IMAX, potentially in London yeah. or something when I'm next there. But just that idea around what he's saying around ego and what we what people do when they have that bruised and all that, because you know, I mean, the, the very end of it and, you know, how he's framed the, the whole decision making process of RTJ, but then indeed why. Oppenheimer even decides to go and do it himself in the first place. Yeah. All the cinematography. It's, it all comes together so well. And the jigsaw puzzle of narrative that Nolan always does works so well here with the end scene of Einstein, I think. And also, to me, it's very much, it's very JFK indeed, 
thinking about it. And that is a long film. And you can watch the director's cut of that, which is near four hours, and it just sucks you in. You don't pause it. You just, you know, and it, the narrative is just so, so propulsive. And this was the same. And then there's the comparison of seeing things, some in black and white, representing one thing in color, which is very, you know, Oliver Stoney. So that's nice. Yeah, God, um, I love Memento for the record. And I love this. And those are my two favorites. And Prestige, I like, but I have always had a problem with the actual magic angle. But I love the Prestige, though. Batman Begins is, I know, kind of the lesser of that trilogy, but it's kind of the most Roger Moore James Bond film, which no one likes anyway. And there's enough in there that I, I can't I can get into it. The other two, obviously, Dark Knight is amazing, but it, I can't, you know, I just can't. Uh, and I haven't seen Rises since the cinema, um, and and so on. I've seen, um, yeah. So I should see Tenet again, but again, didn't didn't get you know, through the barrier. But this one I did. Oh, and Dunkirk, great. But again, it, it looked like there were maybe twenty people on that beach, and so I can't watch it again because that annoys me so much. Even though they mentioned Woking. So there you go. I think Dunkirk's my favourite Sheps, funny enough. But uh, but yeah, wow. yeah, nice bad. Well, I like your styles. We a hey, Jesus. That's yeah. the, let me say that is the principal reason it's my favourite. But um, <laughs> <laughs> well, things are getting a bit hairy over here. <laughs> but listen, we keep going in one direction like this. We need to. Oh, back. Hang on. I I'm glad to say I don't know enough more to do another one. I've run out of information. <laughs> But I know your picture is going to have the X Factor, Sheppy. Hey, you see, on. I didn't even know he was connected to that. So, no, <laughs> it, uh, you, I'm, I'm a dead target. <laughs> You're preaching to the graveyard. But, okay. Well, that's all lovely. If we, is now a good moment just to move swiftly Please. on, I can't gallop wait. on, if you will. Love so, it. it's been a long road, Jimmy, and it's hard as hell. And I'll say this, so what we, we started only Dogs and Horses, and we just watched all of them, and I always knew that we would end with the first proper ending, which was 1996, and not um, do the trilogy, which came out, I think, 2001. I don't know if they were all 2001, I think there were three, maybe it was over a couple of years, I honestly don't know. I only remember one of those episodes, and it was um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, but it ITV wouldn't let them do it, so it's gold with Jonathan Ross and all of that. And it, and again, it pays tribute to Rodney. Right from the beginning, you're told he has like a kinky thing where he likes women in uniform, and they play into that in that episode. So I remember that, but I also knew that it was the worst bit. It's like I don't want to watch season seven onwards of Red Dwarf. I just don't want to. And so I'm like, if it's, and I also knew that I didn't like the last episode particularly from when I first saw it that Christmas in 96. And I haven't seen it since. So knowing all of that, I didn't want to watch another one which I knew was even worse. That was always my thought and my plan to give it a proper ending. I will say, spoiler, it is much more satisfying on the second run for me. It was much more satisfying on the second run for me um, for whatever reason. Also, I think it helped that we watched the whole thing, more or less, you know, we didn't splurge it, but just, again, constantly, steadily, just watched it. And so because of that, it eased into it better and you saw the changes. You know, you didn't wait three years and then see 
the, the next Christmas episode, which is what it became in the 90s, which was lovely. But when you watch it like once every week and a half or something, and then you've got the hour long Christmas ones, you see the quality dip, honestly, but it's also just like it's a, such a rapid succession that it, you know the momentum keeps you going and it's it's nice seeing the characters grow and age and literally grow even though they are the same archetype they do grow and change and of course the actors and all of that and it's lovely and the chemistry is just gorgeous and all of that um so watching this last episode it's still not as good you know it is still on the downward slope but it's it's very satisfying the ending and i'm really glad they didn't win the lottery and the way they did it the guy who, and i remembered this from the first viewing it's um, raquel's dad um he's an antique dealer and they've said for the last because this all came out is the heroes and villains trilogy and it was christmas 96 and there was three which were an hour each and the first one was christmas day and then the, they were over the next few days nights and so the last one jumping all over the place but raquel's dad has been talked about in the last two and even before that there's a whole thing about Raquel hasn't been in touch with her parents because they disapproved of her being an actress it's been like 10 years and now she's like pregnant here at that point and so she gets in touch with them we never meet them but in this very last episode they finally meet Dell and it's like everyone's like oh no and of course it's you know hilarity and it is great anyway the guy who plays Raquel's dad is um, the guy who plays Peter Gwillem in Tinker Taylor and also um, he plays the Valiard, who is the Dark Doctor in The Trial of the Time Lord. So good for him. Uh, he, and so you're told about him, you're told about him, antique dealer, antique dealer. And then he's there and he sees the watch. And you see Sullivan's had the long game going on. It's really satisfying. And just when they find the watch earlier, and Rodney's like, I just wish something would happen. You know, Cassandra's had a miscarriage. They really play into that. And he's like, I just want one good thing. Why can't one good thing come out of the blue? And he's like, oh, don't be silly, you cocker. And then they get out the watch, and you know on a second viewing that watch is the key. And um, and it's great. And so Mikhail's dad turns up, and the chances, you know, it's life's lottery, you know, because he, he wasn't going to stay the night because they had dinner at, the, at Nelson Mandela's house. And, and he's, they're going to drive home, but Dale's like, have more wine. And he's like, oh, all right, can I leave the car? He goes, oh, not outside. You better put it in the garage. And there's this whole little sequence which means that he's going to have to go to the garage, and that's when he sees the watch. And it's lovely, and it's really well done and, um, and great. And it's all that sort of, yeah, the beautiful randomness, but so possible. Um, so that's nice. And the way they tell you how much money it is is really clever. And Bellboy faints, and then they go back in, and they find the higher number. And Rodney faints, and it's the same <laughs> shot. And they both do the trigger, looking into the space and being confused. Where is he? They're looking down, and they both do it to each other. Like it's it's wonderful. Um, and then it ends up being four, and they think it's four hundred thousand, and it's four million, and you know, faint. And it's great. Uh, it's really. But I will say. Maybe it's six million. Yes, it's four million. And then you hear afterwards, because they've both been carried out, that the final price was six million. So it's three million each. But then it's like three million. Dell buys like a mansion in the countryside and he buys Albert uh, like a really a luxury yacht and he buys a Rolls Royce and he takes them all to uh, Barbados or like a five star. So like, even in 1996, I don't think you could do all of this for three million quid. I don't think you could even get the house for three million quid. Um, so, so that that's fun. I don't know why they couldn't have just said, you know, 12 million. People would have been like, fine, okay, whatever. 
Um, so it's weird. But anyway, um, that's true. I will also say, as my um, idea of like my shoulders of giants pitch for if they did want to bring it back four or five years later, what they should have done is had it go back plot-wise to the first season where it's very, very Kirby enthusiasm and they try each time and they're trying to get like 500 quid or to you know to sell these radios or whatever but it's always through about 500 or a thousand and when it's something like 10,000 that's like the big episode and it's like fucking hell um and so if it's exactly like that but like you know an hour long and it's like but it's the flip so they're millionaires and they're in like dubai or whatever with billionaires and oil sheiks and barons and they're doing exactly the same shit but for millions instead of thousands and they're getting into scrapes and it always ends with some sort of calamity and that that and then they're looked down on in exactly the same way that boise always looked down on them because they're billionaires and they're only millionaires so it would totally work and they should have done like one episode in monte carlo then another episode in dubai or saudi arabia or something and then the last one back in london for the finale there you go that's my that's my pitch to sullivan 20 years yeah. too late that would have worked as a lovely bit of publicity that shit so actually i think that's a good idea Instead and the BBC could you know, stump up a little bit of cash. They don't actually have to go to Saudi Arabia, but they could make it look better than, you know, BBC stuff. You know, they could actually do something like it. Like they sent them to Miami so they could do something like that. So anyway, I'll say that. I'm, uh, the first episode, by the way, I know I'm all over the place. The first is Heroes and Villains, and that's the classic one that everyone loves and remembers. It's the, oh, is that the one with the whales one? And it's Del and Rodney just like you and Eddie, dressed up as Batman and Robin, running through the streets of London, which was actually Bristol, because they filmed all the exterior in Bristol. <laughs> so whenever you see in Only Falls Horses them outside, it's Bristol, it's not Peckham at all, um, because it was cheaper. So there you go. So they're running through the streets, Batman and Robin. Um, I remember watching that Christmas Day, 96, and I remember not liking it at all. But no, you know what? I don't know if I've ever seen it. It was the last one I, I didn't like particularly. I don't think I ever saw that. So I don't know what I was doing Christmas 96. Maybe I was watching Muppet Christmas Carol on the other channel, but that doesn't seem like me. Either way, I don't think I'd seen it, but I knew all of the Batman and Robin stuff and I knew it became massive. Um, so that was interesting. It was a, it's a strange one. It's not very good. But what I actually found out was Sullivan had an idea for a story and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. So he then divided it into two episodes um, and that's what that became. And then he wrote a whole new separate episode just for the middle one. Um, and so that one came out of nowhere and the other two were basically the two storylines that just expanded on their own. He's like, fuck it, the BBC will love it. Um, which also explains in Heroes and Villains Part 1, the first five or six or seven minutes is this huge thing that in, in knowing that information is like, well, that's why this scene is in there because he's like, well, let's fill up six or seven minutes with this. It's a dream sequence about Damien from Rodney and it's a pure back to the future too. And it's a dark future. Rodney's like a priest and he's old and he's got like a, a limp and a broken leg. And Damien's basically ruling the universe and his eyes are omen and all of that. And Dell is like, yes, yes, because he's living like a king, but he's like, but you know, the sky is purple with like red lightning and shit. Uh, so it's the end times. So, and that goes on and on and on. And by the way, the actor who plays grown up Damien with his red eyes, he's the actor who was in Penny Dreadful. And also he played Alfred in Joker. Um, and he's in a bunch of stuff. And also he at the time was married to the actress who played Raquel. So there you bloody go. Nice. Um, 
So that really goes off on one, and I wasn't a big fan of that. So I was like, well, I'm glad I didn't watch this in 96. But then I saw the whole episode. It also has the woman who's in this really good episode of Doctor Who, Battlefield. So there you go. She was there. Um, and fine, fine. I didn't love it, but I was like, okay. I was actually really surprised when I saw that the next episode was the last trilogy, because I was like, oh, oh, shit, here we are then. So, so the next one was the one Sullivan wrote just to make it a trilogy, and it's my favourite, actually. It's more old school, and it's just fun, and it's modern men, and I remembered it. It's also the one where Cassandra does lose the baby, and it's this really emotional scene, which was apparently a closed set, where Lindhurst is locked in a lift with Dell, and he finally releases about the dead yeah, baby. Okay. It's crying, going for it. Um, and then it turns out Dell you know, stopped the lift, and all good stuff. Um, and I really like that. And I had this guy in the end who gets punched by Dell, like a loud mouth, loud drug, dr uh, drunk in the hospital. He's like insulting the nurses and Dell comes out and knocks him out. And that's the end of the episode. And that guy was familiar to me. And I knew I knew him from something. And I only realized today it's um, the, I want to say Bernie Clifton, the uh, Clifton Suspension Bridge uh, quiz. Um, but I don't know, is that, because I don't want to get the wrong person, but anyway, it's from Alan Partridge, and it's the one of the other DJs who he hates, and they always have, like, spiky banter. So anyway, it's that actor about 10 years, 15 years before he was in Alan Partridge, um, and he's in loads of stuff. So that was good, and the last episode I liked more than I thought I would, and Martha liked it, and we all liked it very much. So there you go. That was a hell of a journey for only fools and horses. <laughs> well listen man that's so cool i have to say i do remember watching heroes and villains as a family in 96 and we loved it and i but i i haven't revisited really since so i think it'd be when it comes to my own lap of this uh, i'd be interested to rewatch that and i'm pretty sure if i remember that's where trigger's broom comes from that one and stuff. yes uh, oh i'm so glad you mentioned it that's the classic where he says the broom joke and i didn't even know that i assumed i had seen it because everyone knows trigger's broom joke Yes, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but that's great because I had totally forgotten that and I had made a note, but I was going off script uh, like a fool. And so I'm really glad you mentioned it because I would have seen that later and kicked myself. Uh, yes, yes. And I'm glad you liked it in 96, Jimmy, when you're all there, all huddled up by the fire <laughs> with your fingerless gloves, your bloody urchin. I so I'm do. a big fan of that. Did you watch the other two, the same holiday break? Yes, you see... absolutely, absolutely. And uh, but I, I seem to remember like the triggers broom was the lesser of the two trigger gags in that one. I mean, when they turn up and they, you know, he tells them he thought he it was fancy dress too, you know, and he was in his, <laughs> and he did his black tie. That always really makes me very happy as well. So. Yes, right. And also, and I don't, it might be the last episode, but it's that trilogy. They they talk about being at school, you know, all of them together, which they do sometimes. And they talk about when Trigger was, I think they say 12, and then when they were 12 and he ran straight into this uh, no, like mind your head sign. And he ran straight into the mind your head sign. And they said, you were so concussed. They were worried you had brain damage, Trig. And then you're sort of thinking, oh, it's like Trigger begins. That's why he's how he is, because he brained himself. But then, And then they say, why did you run into that sign, Trigger? And like, well, I couldn't read. And they go, oh, no, he was always Trigger. <laughs> so uh, it's genius. Amazing. I don't know if it's even written to be a double bluff or if it's just Sullivan writing a joke, writing a joke and not necessarily worrying about narrative continuity. But either way, it worked. It was a nice uh, double hoodwink 
and um, <laughs> and I liked it. It made me happy. And everyone, seeing all of the cast of characters grow, and as the episodes became like one hour, you got other scenes before Dell enters the pub. It spends like three minutes on like Mike and Denzel or something, and and you just it's it's lovely. It's wonderful. It makes everything. Oh. Sing. I remember even in the day chefs, like a, it might have been a video spot for the Beeb or something. I can't remember, but there was a, they 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 paid the license for the Hollies. He ain't heavy. He's my brother, and they did like a montage of Dell and Rodney over the years. Wow. Man, even then I was had a lump in the throat watching the change of them over the time. You yeah, grapes and adventures. Right? And they're so close, really, you can man. see it. Yeah. And I've seen behind the scenes photos. And on David Jason's autobiography, on the back, I think is a is a photo where someone basically papped a photo of uh, Jason and, and Lindhurst when they're in Bristol, presumably filming a scene. And they're both they don't know they're being photographed, and they're both really laughing about something. It's such a nice photo. I looked for it online and I found a similar photo. But I don't, it's not exactly how I see it in my mind's eyes. So I don't know if it was like a click, 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 and it was a different click that I've seen, or if I just remember wrongly, but it was still them in the same location laughing. So there you go. So lovely, jubbly. Well, that's the that's bloody best full stop you could ever ask for. <laughs> I think so. I think so. We just go home there. Um, it was, oh, but I will also say, Hell of a ride, David Jason, Nicholas Lindhurst. It was wonderful, and also seeing Only Fools and Horses through the spectrum of fresh eyes from the beginning, episode one with Marta, and doing a vicarious vampire through that experience, and was wonderful. Having her discover the word plonker, and then discovering that it was a running, it was the thing of Only Fools and Horses was plonker, and her liking it before knowing that, and that was nice, and all sorts of stuff like that, and seeing, like I say, everyone growing up, and then seeing the regenerations of, of David Jason, and liking Dell so much, so we finished, and we watched the first few episodes of uh, Open All Hours, so there you go. Oh my god, wow. Yeah, and off we go again. My life. Parker, a lot. I thought, wow, that's going to be huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that, that's a little like, you know, at the end of a film, it's all the end. But like, now on to our next adventure, which now they don't make the sequel, but you, you, know, they, you know, they go off and have a nice adventure. So there you are. Lovely, jubbly. Again, I say, Jimmy, it was great. Um, and it was nice going right then back and seeing Granville, which was amazing for Marta. She was like, what a face. So good stuff. <laughs> And it occurs to me now, we're doing a lot of David Jason, because in the past, we have seen Danger Mouse. Um, so, and I told her, you remember Danger Mouse? That's David Jason too. Oh, and you remember Mr. Toad from that Wind in the Willows? That's him as well. So, yeah, she's a, a Jason head. Didn't even know it. Who isn't, Sheps? Who isn't? Yeah, it's true. Um, all right, young man. Do you want to get to the meat of your pitch? I think we probably should. <laughs> we bloody should. <laughs> Uh, lovely, lovely, lovely. So, Jimmy, we uh, are going to do Kroll today, which we didn't even say, but anyone can know this. Um, so that's fine. Kroll, 1983. Uh, I always knew that I was going to set this from basically the beginning. When you first told me about your ideas for this whole podcast, I knew, yeah, one of them is going to be Flash Gordon, one of them is going to be Kroll. And here we are. Well, 1983, um, I saw it in the cinema. I have double-checked and confirmed with both my siblings, and they both remember going to see it at the Cranny Cinema, 
83, which means I would have been five, because I assume it was a summer release. And I do remember walking back to the car, um, you know, down by the little cricket green and all of that. Um, so, yeah, when it parked up that little lane, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, um, and watching that, I will also say as a quick note, um, I, I watched Crow at the cinema and I continue to watch Crow on video and I taped it off TV and watched it. And then at a certain point in the 2000s, I bought it on DVD um, and watched it. And I think, yeah, I did the commentary. So, so I've never really left Crow, maybe like six years here, here and there, but generally Crow has been a constant. Um, and when I was watching it with Marta for this podcast, um, we had actually seen it before, like about four years ago in Prague, but we were watching it. And at a certain point, I turned to her and said, you know, this is a kid's film. She was like, no, it's not. I said, you know, I saw this in the cinema when I was crying. She said, that's ridiculous. Um, because it suddenly occurred to me she was watching it as if it was a horror film. Um, and I just wanted to let her know, it is, you're not wrong, but this was a PG. She was like, it was a PG. What are you talking about? Um, so that was nice, because it's a fucking nasty film. Um, what's what's your take? What's your history with Crow, Jimmy? Uh, I went on holiday to Cornwall. Uh, I'm thinking it's 84, 85, probably 85, because it took a bit of time for things to happen. And two traumatic things happened to me on that holiday, Chefs. Mm. One was that uh, we were there for two weeks, and for 13 mornings, I was a spoiled little brat, and Vicky was ordering waffles, my sister Vicky, for listeners. Every morning, she got waffles and syrup. And first morning, I thought, oh, I don't know what waffles are. They're pretty gross. And then sort of out of spite, I just didn't order waffles for the rest of the holiday. And then on the last morning, I finally ordered waffles and changed my life. And my mum has always referred to that as like the metaphor for everything. Whenever you put bungee jumping off, for God's sake, you know, like remember the waffles, you know, like Jesus, mother. You know, anyway, so that happened. That was traumatising. The second thing that really traumatised me was I walked into a little mini cinema room they had set up, which I guess must have had a big telly or whatever in the day. And... um Krull was playing and specifically um they had their I've got the name of the green wizard fellow uh, in my pitch I've forgotten it off the top of my head but you know he they the moment he falls into the swamp and is or even the evil version of him falls into the swamp and his face goes all weird oh, and his right. eyes goes up and yes. I would have been I think seven or eight years old and holy crap it just it yeah. was bigger than Mullaram, bigger than jaws bigger than it was just oh my god it blew my head off i couldn't sleep for ages i couldn't think about it it was just it traumatized me in a way that i don't think any other film ever has honestly like stay with me forever ever and then i was i i, I was approaching that scene like from behind my fingertips yes and uh it, of course it was fine but just uh but yeah that's great so wait can i just to clarify to me that I was really thinking about Remember the Waffles, because that, that's kind of changed my life as well. But I also thought in terms of bungee jumping, um, I don't know, Remember the Waffles, but then what if you jump and it breaks and you die? It's like, well, Remember the Waffles now, motherfucker. So I don't know. That's what I was thinking about for a second. So I want to ask you, when you saw this um, terrifying rendition of Troll, which changed your life in a waffly way, were you surrounded by other children? Oh, yeah, was your oh yeah, yeah. It wasn't. It was. It was designed as a kids' activity. So there you go. Double that down right. for Martha. That was. It was what, like the Badger I mean, film we watched in Swanage. <laughs> well, the parents were bloody, you know, 
I don't know, doing their parents. Drinking G and T, laughing about cigarettes. Yeah, sure. Um, um, and yeah. did everyone else love it, or was anyone else freaking out? I don't know. I I ran out the room, right? Like you know, like a big scaredy pants. I didn't want to see any more, so I can't tell you what the, the whether there was a standing ovation. Did everyone cheer <laughs> and say "yabu" to scaredy poo and throw <laughs> their like panda cola bottles at you? Gutted. <laughs> well, that's horrific. Thank you for reliving that. Um, still in there and <laughs> I'm outside weeping make it stop yeah chewing on a waffle going it's a fucking hip problem <laughs> that explains why she was so cool with that peanut head we saw in 89 <laughs> probably but I'll say um so what was your when did you watch the entirety because I know we watched it together in Cranley um yeah but and I would say we were probably I don't know what 10 11 12 yeah I reckon that was the last time I saw it Sheps so did you see it before that? Like, did you see it in its entirety before we watched it in Cranley? I'm going to say no. I think that's you doing a little cheeky vicarious vampire thing, going, Jimmy, <laughs> it's time to face your freaking eyeball <laughs> and uh, just putting it on. <laughs> I've Great. got a huge uh, observation about that, by the way, when I get to it. I could do it now. All right. Well, I will say, just in terms of that viewing, it, it, um, whilst I'm thinking about this, before we get to the eyeball, which I can't wait, by the way, um, I, re- I remember us watching it. I remember we we liked the bit where Cyclops died because it looked like he was doing a poo. Exactly where um, it's going to go. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. I was, in that case, I'm sorry for stepping on it, but I wanted to say that before I forgot. And also, I do, re- I, I vaguely remember the viewing and I seem to remember it going down well. Um, what about you? I, I remember the viewing. I remember what we used to find hilarious was the grunting, right, that he made as he was holding the wall off for them. Right. And, like, we used to call them grunter. And then on this viewing, I couldn't detect a single grunt from Breslau. And it was quite <laughs> mortifying, you know? I just... Yeah. It was, we gave it, it was because we had the Emergency Secret Service moment in the same room, same TV. <laughs> And that had Grunter, and so your mind just amalgamated and Brundleflied the two together. I think that's exactly it. <laughs> well, I'll say this. I feel bad for Cyclops because, like many, if not all, deaths in that film, it's fucking horrific. But um, I don't feel bad about us laughing because if it's saved us from having nasty nightmares, well, poor old constipated one eye, then I'm, I'm all better for it. Um, it's a nasty film. I said it before and I'll say it again. And I'll also say this. It's very comparable to another film that was made because of the success of Star Wars, which is Flash Gordon, which we've talked about before. But that's another film. It's fantasy and everything. And both films are actually very fun, I think. But they're both nasty as fuck. And they're both directed by specific English or British directors um, who in the past have made dark and gritty films. Uh, and then you've got John Borman, who's Irish, who did Excalibur after doing Point Blank, for example. If he hadn't have done Excalibur, which kind of counts, it's a slightly different affair, but if he hadn't have done that, he would have directed my crawl too, by the way. But I couldn't because he'd done Excalibur. But I wanted like a, a, a director who did like a gritty English thing. It was a really weird choice for like a big... And, and it's, it's true. Um, and also it is nasty. It's needlessly nasty. It's horrible. Like the fucking, I forgot what they're called, but the nasty, cunty stormtrooper things who are horrible anyway, 
But then when you apparently kill them, they go, and their face cracks open. And this fucking slug thing screeches at you and burrows off into the earth with this sort of flappy jellyfish tail. It's absolutely horrible. Where do they go? I didn't even answer that. I can't open that Pandora's box. I left that well alone. Absolutely horrible. I was gonna. That's one of my little bullets as well for you, Sheppy, today on on the viewing I did. But um, I want to give you probably one of the biggest confessions I've ever given you in my entire life. But <laughs> on the basis of old weird sound sluggy face thing with that and the Daleks, let's be honest, have kind of got weird sluggies in them too, right? I'm not sure. Yeah, Realised until I don't know. I just I wasn't close watching when I was a kid, right? Let's just say until maybe. The force, not the force awakens, but let's just say my twenties. I didn't realize that stormtroopers were human beings for a long right. time in Star Wars. I didn't realize you thought they were just like robots, like with with them. Yeah, like maybe you know what I mean. I don't. Or with sluggy things, maybe. Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, I will say your twenties is a bit much. That's a bit embarrassing. But <laughs> all, all, all in all, fair play. When you saw Phantom Menace, then were you like? Finally, Roger, Roger, my dreams have come true. It's like flying R2 in a Attack of the Clones. Um, fair play, Jimmy, fair play. That is a hell of a stonker, but fair. And I'm glad they are human, as it were, and not fucking Tamara Morrison, by the way, that was really annoying. Um, yeah, so tell me about the eyeball. Was, it, was that oh, the Cyclops? No, it- the eyeball was a thing. It was just, it, it was just horrifying. The the Cyclops thing was just about our man grunting in the wall and realizing right. he didn't grunt after all, and that was right. huge for me. I have a, I have a page of notes here, Sheps. Whenever you're ready for it on the viewing, and it might Let's, take a yeah. few to broadly and think of things as we want to talk about them. Or yeah, but... I, well, talk, tell me about this eyeball thing, and I guess I'll just say something off random, and then yes, then let's go through the notes. Absolutely. Well, the eyeball, the eyeball thing is just that uh, that fake wizard, which I think is a brilliant seer. It's the yeah. seer, isn't it? When he right. um, when he is uh, when he sinks into the swamp, and basically yeah. his face just decomposes, and like yeah. the eyeball goes all big, and like it just, yeah. I just couldn't deal with that vision. It was so real right. and visceral, and made me scared for my eyeballs. I don't know what to say. It just yeah, it got it's it's like deep. they they watch Clytus's death in Flash Gordon, and they're right. Let's see if we can top that. Um, it is horrific. Also, when fake seer kills see- seer, um, you see his hand and it morphs and goes really horrible with these really long talons. And then he kind of, you see a big close up of his face and he plunges his hand forward and you see a big close up of evil seer snarling. And you see a big close up of real seer reacting and then kind of looking very much in pain. And he's kind of being shaken or shook um, in, within this big close-up of his face. You can't really see what's happening. And you see a big close-up of Evil Seer, and he's sort of shaking, doing something. And you never see like a big two-shot or wide shot where you actually see what's going on, which is actually, of course, much more horrific. He's like, what the fuck is he doing to kill him? And what I assume is because he's got these huge talons on his hand, he's plunged his hand like through the guy's back and he's gripping hold of his spine and he's shaking him like a fucking Mm. rattle. That's my assumption. Everything (laughs) is pointing to at least he stuck his hand through his back like a sort of a pointy five-star spear. Um, That's that's the very least. So in my mind, 
he's gripping that spider, he's giving it a shake. Um, so, so there you go, that's horrific. I wanted to mention that. I also wanted to mention Colwyn is fine, but he's very bland. I just wanted to mention. Uh, and Lissa has nothing to do. And I did think it would be interesting if the film was almost word for word identical, but the, they were flipped and he was taken by female beast and she went on the exact same adventure. Just as a flip would instantly make two bland characters more interesting. So there you go. Yeah, they should have done that, to be honest. And yeah, when you think about if you're ripping off Star Wars and you have Princess Leia, who's fighting. Yeah, a very strong vital character. Yeah, her, anyway, but. Yeah. Yeah, well. So okay. take, let's go through your notes. All right, chefs, let me tell you this. Well, look, the, uh, let's probably get to the notes. I'll just say, like, this ended up being something that I had to do in, uh, you know, bits and pieces. It was just a bit busy with work and whatnot. And I just ended up, like, two things. I had one meeting where I sat side by side with a gentleman. I needed to show him something that was going to be on my laptop. And um, and I just, uh, I flipped up the laptop. And because I had to watch this on SBS on Aussie for free, right? And they have ad breaks on it, which will come into something in a minute as well, which I'll tell you about. But um, they had ad breaks. So I didn't want to lose my place. I have to go all the way back to the beginning and watch it all again, like, you know, and go yeah. through the ads again and all that sort of thing with preview telly. Yeah. So well, I had Crow as a tab the whole time. And there it is. I was <laughs> tab doing this meeting. <laughs> and the guy's looking at me, going, all right, all right. <laughs> anyway. Crow. <laughs> that's amazing. I've got the deal over the line. Who bloody knows? That's that? like a Jerry. That's like a, a Larry moment. <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, notice you've uh, got, got crawl on your laptop. Yeah, like crawl. I'm more of a hawk, the Slayer man. No, you're out of your mind. Crawl's not going to be a hawk, the Slayer. Anyway. Um, and, then, and then the notes have been on there as well a few times where I've shared screen and little things just with, with my admin assistant and stuff and that. But, you know, it's just been funny and a bit like, oh, well, don't worry about that. We'll talk about something else. But it's just nice. It's been in my life for a while, the Sheps. And, um, and it's been nice like that. So I've kind of carried it with me a little bit. And, um, and I, I sent this to you as a message, but let me say as well, this like, so this was set as homework. At first it felt like homework. It is homework and it is a shit movie, <laughs> but that's okay. But it has the curio factor and then it had four massive LOLs, which I'm looking forward to sharing with you. And there was a sequence of awesomeness, I think. So thank you so much, Sheppy, is the fundamentals for this. But oh, uh, thanks, man. Um, first bullet is just it's a bit mean-spirited but love when the credits are longer than the movie superman style nah. it's just that idea of like you know the credits are huge and i love it and that's happy um yeah i love the line from um princess lisa's uh pops good fighters make bad husbands i thought it was just nice it's a nice they line. do indeed yes <laughs> you know they dubbed her and she is a real flash gordon sam jones type thing they she turned up to the premiere and found out she'd been totally dubbed but she got her revenge on the producer by marrying her son, his son, her okay. words. She that's says that on the commentary when she was doing three up, two down. So there you go. That's amazing. Well, I have acknowledged that. And um, uh, what I've done with the sequel ships, I think you'll get You know, what a character. So much more than an Obi-Wan surrogate, I've said. The, the first thing we see is he steals a necklace of Colwyn's dad and doesn't even close his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't even close the king's eyes. He's lying there dead. I thought it was amazing. Um, 
it really does move at the beginning. I said, could it be so quick without Star Wars in the past? It was just a little. These are all little Bon Mott's throwaways. Jeff. No, please. So I, I literally, because I had it on my lappy, I was watching on SBS. I was able to pause SBS, write a note, nice. pause, write a note. You know. So um, <laughs> I put like uh, Neeson bringing some ice. I mean, Liam Neeson in it is ridiculous. We haven't even really mentioned. It. <laughs> Liam Neeson bringing some Iceman energy to start with as uh, as Keegan before switching midway through the film and becoming the ladies' man. I thought that was an extraordinary <laughs> character change. Like, you know, anyway, I thought, I thought of course he's, he's, a, he's, he's the gay character, but it doesn't matter. Um, okay, here we go. I didn't pick up on any gayness. I thought he was mugging a bit. Whilst you mentioned Neeson, it's obviously worth mentioning. I mean, it's a hell of a cast. It's English, like, Pinewood style. So you've got your Coltrane, you've got your Todd Carty, um, you know, your Tucker Jenkins. Uh, Tucker's luck, indeed it is. I think he survived, so good for him. You've got the weird um, shape-shifting wizard dude who was the Candyman dude, creepy from Willy Wonka. Um, so Ooh. that's nice. I remember, I remember liking him when I was a kid, and now, of course, I find him irritating. But, I did, but that's it. I liked him. Um, so what can you do? He worked like Jar Jar. Um, and I also like the sort of the morphing because I don't think that was CGI. I think it was hand drawn. I assume the morphing into the beast because no one ever talks about Kroll using CGI. They always talk about um, young Sherlock Holmes and Willow. So there you go. Um, so I don't think it was CGI. I think it was clever hand drawn. That's really nice. That is nice. I mean, again, I. I'll be honest, the most exciting part of what I've done, Sheppy, is the casting, perhaps. As a, well, as well, yeah. So, uh, You've got all these, and I want to quickly not mention Alan Armstrong. Alan Armstrong for life, I've always liked him. And He's he the best character was, in the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, He's just amazing. Yeah. I love him. I yeah. love him too. I'm really glad he survives. Me too. Because um, like I say as well, every death is horrible. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> that should be the tagline. <laughs> okay, so I've got a genuine LOL from Coltrane's Room, which may uh, by default be my favourite moment in the whole movie. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, basically, he just says it sort of to himself uh, with a, can't a man talk to himself without being interrupted? I just thought it was just lovely. It was the first one. <laughs> it's actually nice. an extraordinary line. It's an eye of the duck line. And you know what? His voice was dubbed as well by Michael L. No way. By Michael wow. of Three Up, Two Down as well. Oh, oh my God. I was going to say Boone. But you're absolutely right. What was all that about? Do you think he dubbed Lissa as well? Um, <laughs> good on Elphick. Wow. That's amazing, actually. I also, once we talk about Coltrane in this film, two years before European vacation, um, he, when he dies, it's it's a really affecting moment, actually. Well, I should also say this film is directed by Peter Yates, who directed Bullet. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of, you know, amazing, really, when you think about it. Like, how did he get the gig? Um, but when he dies, um, he sort of, he says a nice line, another good line. And he's like, something like, it's it's been a good journey, finish it. And then he dies. And he says, it's been a good journey. And then there's like a blast nearby where, because the Nazi things are shooting, and Colwyn looks away for a second, only for a second. But in that second, he misses the last thing Coltrane says, and then Coltrane starts forward and dies. So then when he looks back, he's dead. 
and he's missed the last moment of the cool last thing. And it's the same thing. Time, uh, in um, with Helen Highwater, this Ina Sheridan film, which is really good, um, someone dies in that in the same way. And it's it's cool. So there you go. So I wanted to shout out once I remembered about good old oh, culture. Right. It's got lovely uh, good throwaways like that, isn't it? This movie, it's nice. Yeah. Then I've just gone best supporting actor goes to Breslau. Holy shit. I mean, yeah. the acting with the lips. They can yeah. everything, friendship, courage, I've just put like, and that everything. Yeah, grim like, determination. When oh. he runs after the swamp spews up the dead seer. Oh. And there's that really cool cut where you, you don't see him start to run. You see that, and then you see Colwyn run, and it cuts, and he's just tearing through the swamp. Yeah, good for him. I bet he couldn't see anything, by the way, so that was impressive. And Breslau, what a carry-on. Yeah, okay. what a twist. Okay. It's so random. And yes, I had a little bit of fun with casting as well, because it is. It's so random. And just, it's like when um, Elmo from Brushstrokes pops up in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's just like a joyous moment where only in a certain period of time in England, you're watching that at the cinema. I'm sure in Cranley Cinema, I'm sure everyone laughed when they saw that Elmo was on the big screen. So so there you go. Yes, it's, there's a lot of that in Thrall. Just the, and, and you know some of it is retrospective like I mean well like Neeson who had been in stuff but including Excalibur talking of Foreman but and you know Robbie Coltrane had been on TV and had been in the young ones for example and popped up so it's possible you'd be like isn't that the guy from the young ones and comic strip I think had started by that point I think so anyway he wasn't unknown so it would have been nice and of course Tucker Jenkins is probably the key people of a certain age, like 10-year-old boys watching fans fans of Grange Hill would be like, fuck it out! Um, yeah, but that's huge. I was too young to appreciate that myself at the time. But yes. Um, so, wonderful. Good old Breslin and also, or, oh, quick question. So you're told that you can, you're, you're told you can see your own death, right? So you can see your own death and that's their curse. Um, now, the way I always, without even second thinking about it or second guessing it, I always, my whole life assumed, the way I saw it was that he was destined to stay on that hill with, you know, where they, where they go, this is my time, I must stay here. And he always knew that on that hill he would die. But then he's like, I'm not leaving my friends to die. And he gets the horse and he gallops with fire over there. And then he dies and he has such a horrible death it's kind of like a final destination it's universe balancing out like oh well you were going to have a really peaceful death on the hilltop as the sun went down but fine okay you want to do it like this and you're going to die like that and that's the universe just being oh well that's the balance then isn't it um and that even as a five-year-old on some level that's how i always saw it um but i don't know watching it this time i'm like what am i basing that on did he Think, did he know that he was going to get crushed in horrible death and he was doing a Jesus and he stayed on the hill as a coward? But there's no hint of that. So I don't know. Any thoughts? No, no thoughts, Sheppy. I like the first one better, though. I, I like the final yeah. death, final destination of it all. That's that's better for me, yeah. But uh, I don't, yeah. Yeah, I, I want him to be purer than pure and, like, not a coward. Right. <laughs> Another quick observation, not just whilst we're going off on one, is Troll's interesting because it is fantasy 100%, but the Beast is an alien, we're told, and we're shown 100%. We're told he's a fucking alien, and 
it's got these slayers, or I think, or whatever, and they've got their swords, and everyone's got swords, and everyone's got horses, but they've also got lasers. Um, now I'm sure from a Hollywood point of view, it's like, we gotta have lasers, the kids love lasers. But even so, just from the artistic point of view, you're like, yeah, that's it's a nice merging. But the world of Crow, and I was thinking about this for my sequel, like, there's no real machines, and I was trying to remember that. Um, and, and, and that helps stay away from any sort of sci-fi stuff. Um, but mine does. Like, yeah, anyway, so, so that's another little thing. Yeah. That was actually going to be the next bullet as well. But before we even do that, because I just wanted to say to you, I completely agree with you on the alien-y sort of vibe of it all. And I, my, I, obviously, there's so many influences on this movie, but I would tell you my influences for mine, just as a little tease, I've I've cited it as obviously a Star Wars Robin Hood, and then you've got like Terminator for me and Thundercats oh. and Predator. Wow, <laughs> good grief! But like, I'm going to speed this up because I can't wait to hear that fucker. That's um, amazing. But my next bullet was going to be: Is it better without laser beams, but still the glaive as a straight medieval battle? And I said it really does have edgy Robin Hood flim vibes, and that's not just the sock shoved down Marshall's tights. Ho ho! That's a real Jimmy Age thirteen comment. But anyway, never mind. <laughs> now these slayers go. are horrible and a genuine threat, oh. and they're they're hard to kill, and they're 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 really brutal and very strong, and it's like you know it's. To kill one is a major victory, so they're the opposite of stormtroopers in that respect, uh, which I like. Yeah, yeah, agreed, man. They, they, they're solid, <laughs> and they're not. Yes. Um, but yeah, they. So here we go. Second LOL ships of four. Here we go. So where they go to the see old Yoda guy to see if he can see where the black fortress is. Here we go. So I haven't read these notes for a few days. So, um, so the seer says the swamp is too treacherous. Colwyn says. Our need is great, but it's a really flat line reading to the point of like, you know, what I've heard about it before. It's just not convincing at all. It's just like, our need is great, you know? And then this is where the SBS channel just took a break. And like, so it basically has the seer going, that swamp is too treacherous. Colin just goes, our need is great. And then when the SBS came back from the break, the band are just en route fellowship style with the seer. I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> with the skills, that's ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, happy. you couldn't wait for the negotiation scene. <laughs> like, how was he going to convince them? <laughs> um, I've got my stormtrooper confession here. That's fine. Um, discussing wishes. Okay. Um, so the wish um, from Titch is uh, to have just one puppy. Um, if you just had one wish, and Ergo, your man that you loved as a kid, Sheps, and now things are the way. Ergo's like, that's a stupid wish. And you, Cyclops, what would you wish for? And Cyclops goes with ignorance. And I'm like, holy shit, man. Another shout out to Breslau. Got shivers there. Yeah. So throw away. Yeah. So it's amazing. Um, yeah. the, uh, the first swamp death, very, very effective. You know? So anyway, just yes. call it out. The swamp sequence itself, amazing amazing like it's just a, an electric that's my awesome bit chefs i think the whole swamp set pieces it awesome. doesn't look cheap no. you can see a set obviously but it doesn't look cheap it's a good production it's got good value i, I feel that too man and it feels yeah oh it always scared me of swamps to be honest as well for, for some at least i'm going with the swamp bit of course yeah. the movie well that a never-ending story i mean for god's sake with the horse oh god man anyway 
Um, Ajax for life, bro. It's Colwyn's shining hour for me. Like it's when he's the, in his best form and he's being very, very heroic. I've put, and I, I, I just had the third LOL though in the swamp sequences. You've got the sort of the red shirt character who's sinking, and then they do that amazing sort of, you know, yeah. hold your hands. And chain. Yeah. Colwyn's at the tip of the chain, which is amazing, and then the, the red shirt sinks. <laughs> And it's really like, shit, man, that's bad. And then his hand does this crazy horror oh. pop-up. And then down again, yeah. that really made me laugh out loud. So I'll funny. say this. That really freaked Marta out. She was really invested in Redshirt. By the way, I had someone in my script called Redshirt, and I only changed his name today. But Redshirt, when he went down, when that, it was so horrific anyway, just the, the hand coming up for a second, knowing that from his perspective, you know your hand is in the air for a second, that it goes back down. And it's like, it's, it's sort of sadistic on the part of the universe. And so... Well, whilst you were guffawing, Marta was weeping for the loss of humanity. So there you go. Spectrum, son. Spectrum. What does that say about me? I don't no, know. I love it. I love both. I, I agree with both. And it is <laughs> funny. It's like, um, and horrific. Absolutely. Yes. And very well done. Played to the hilt. <laughs> I really, I found myself really falling into the movie and falling in love with it a bit at that moment with the wizard, like the whole bit with the nails, like you're saying, shaking the spine and all that and the transfer and everything. And, and, um, and I, I said as well, like sets are good, but they still, you feel the sets, even though they're high quality sets. And, and I just feel like it does make you realize and appreciate the huge character New Zealand played in Lord of the Rings, like, yeah. and how that really makes the difference almost, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I put it lends sound... itself beyond well. Yeah, totes, man. And then the sound design, I've put I've put the five-star sound, man. Good old Horner, mm. good old life. Like, it's really oh, well, good. Oh, isn't it? It's really good. Like, if we're mentioning Horner in terms of soundtrack, I'll say, um, and I've mentioned this before on the pod, um, there are, like, maybe five songs that are on, like, a shuffle in my mind which will pop up every now and again, and one of them is the theme to Kral. Um I've got two Horners on that shuffle, but I've got the Rocketeer as well. I've got two Goldsmiths um, with Ghost in the Darkness and Star Trek First Contact, if you happen to know. So the Kroll theme is always on my mind, and when it pops up, I bloody love it. And it's Horner, so it's very reminiscent of other ones he's done, like Star Trek 2 and Aliens, but it's great. Um, I like it very much. It's just, it's beautiful, it's lovely, and it's great. And then... And then I've got, it's like, I put, it's like Neeson and Coltrane are in a totally different movie. Neeson especially nah. so relaxed. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> back on the wishes, I had a genuine lump in the throat when Ergo transformed into a puppy. Possibly the most heartwarming thing I've ever seen on celluloid is what I put here, but Ergo <laughs> puppy was very happy. Okay, fourth and final LOL as far as I know um, from, from them. So going to visit the witch. So this is before Yunir gets to the spider cave, right? So they're outside, and this is a Chevy Chase Will Ferrell moment, no less. I put. <laughs> so basically, Yunir says to the troop, I must go alone. Colwyn says, I'm going with you, and starts to get <laughs> off the horse. And Yunir's like, no. But as, as he's saying no, Colwyn's already got back on the horse. <laughs> and <laughs> Like he was never going to come with him anyway. He's too much of a <laughs> the witch. You know? And I love that. Like it's sort of, and, and I put here, 
Chevy didn't do the whole I really shouldn't play the piano gag with three amigos until three years later in 1986. I looked it up, Chevy. Yeah, you go. Like, basically, freaking old Colwyn is the comedian's comedian, and that makes me happy. So, Brilliant. he invented it. Um, but that makes me happy too. <laughs> um, I put you near on the web in that cave, you know, really has mm. Canopian Death Star vibes, doesn't it? It's just nice. Yeah, but it's horrific. Such a horrible looking spider as well. Oh, like, yeah. It's sort of I love that silvery it's... white. Yeah. Yes. Really yes. Cool. I assume it's stopped motion. It's really horrible. Yeah. Um, and then the scene with Francesca Annis where she's talking about, I had your baby and I bashed its brains out. Oh, it's like, fuck it. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Is there anything darker in ever, ever kids from ever? Jesus. No. I think that might have been the moment when I reminded Marta that this was a kids film I watched it when I was five years old. Oh. I had your baby. I smashed his brains out. Oh, cup of tea. Like, wow. Uh, yeah. And it's like... Everyone's got history. It's. I think it's the point where the film jumps the shark and then it starts to fall apart after that. And it's not just the killing of a son. It's just like... It, I think it just started that that scene is a bit too long and stuff, and it's just it was trying to get Shakespearean and, yeah. and so on. And yeah. um, by the way, so he gets given the sand, and are we told this or not? Because when he gets so he uses the sand to stop the spider, yeah. which was inside it. I wonder why. And he gets to the end, and he gets out, and goes in three days. It's like gonna be over there. And they're like right, and then he dies. Why does he die? Are we told that the sand is his life? Which means anyone who goes to the center of the web, doesn't matter if you get eaten by the spider, if you leave, you'll die, unless you have the sand. I don't get why he dies. I like he wasn't bitten by the spider or anything like that. Um, so I don't know what he does. No, it's a bit stupid, maybe. I don't know. Again, some laws that need to be explained a bit like the whole cyclops seeing the death or getting the chance to change it. I don't but I, I say it's funny you say it because like I'd gone a step back on it, Sheps, and I, when it was a bit of a passage of fifty-seven for me when the witch is saying to him and he just gets there and he's just about to get on the spider web and she goes, "I give you this time," and I said here it would be a classic Jimmy Sheppy of like, so are you talking about time to get across the web and have a conversation here or the time I've got left to kind of live or like you know, <laughs> I don't know I I guess the, maybe as soon as he's touched it time is running out and he's just got. But then the sand runs out when he gets, I don't even, anyway. It's very strange. It's very strange. But then the spider goes back and maliciously, what I can't, kills her, which is horrible. Um, so, yes. But, yeah. Well, she did the nasty baby basher, but still, she's, she's, she's I don't know. It's weird. Um, he's would... very Gandalf as well. Like, everyone knows, and like Cyclops is like, I heard when you were here. So he's got a lot of Gandalf and all of that, which, of course, is lots of Kenobi anyway. Um, which is interesting, but everyone kind of knows everyone, which is also interesting. I do want to mention quickly, at the beginning of the film, we see the beast's rock ship land, and then we see it's night, and we see the, the slayers ride out, and then we see the castle, and there's going to be the wedding, and then the slayers arrive and attack. So, again, I've always assumed from the beast landing to the attack is fairly quick, now, they're banding together Romeo and Juliet style to fight the Slayer. So they're common enemies. But they're like, our oh, kids are going to marry because we have to fight the Slayer. So therefore, they haven't just arrived. So the real question is, 
when we saw the slayers ride out, was that a slayers back in the day? I mean, how long has the beast been on trial? Are we talking a month? Are we talking a year? But then Yerir says Cyclops's people in ancient days want, you know, were tricked by the beast. So it's like, where did that happen? On Kroll or off planet? Is Cyclops an alien? Who is the beast? Everyone knows the beast. Everyone knows Ymir. Uh, has he been on Kroll for 10,000 years? 50,000 years? We just don't know about it. And when it jumps to the castle, it's fucking eons later. I don't know. I mean, to your point, Shaps, around the execs and needing laser beams and stuff, I mean, you can feel the drugs a bit of this movie, can't you? Let's be honest. <laughs> it's a bit all over the place. It's not worth... It doesn't hold up to a lot of scrutiny. It's <laughs> weird stuff. I did try and explain some of it retroactively, uh, but we'll see how that holds up. Wow. Was there any other bullet points? Just, just a few. I promise to get this over soon. No, 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 no. I'm not trying to rush. I just need to whet my appetite. So I've just got the, the second and final shout out to SBS Australia for the ad gaps again, because mm -hmm. he returns, as he said, and he dies and they establish the fortress is a thousand leagues from here. And then they just say, there's time if we move quickly. And then there's just an ad break at that point for SBS. And then it's basically back and then they're, 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 they're kind of okay. Anyway. I love the line "each to his fate." I think that's on the that's tagline for poster material, isn't it? Gravitas to oh, nice. And I put didn't count one grunt from Cyclops, and then oh. I I just thought when the prince they go to rescue the princess, she's in her little white bubbly thing, whatever it is, and the glaive is cutting through to the princess, and she starts to smile. And I thought, how does uh, she know that that she's never met yeah. the before? You know, with yeah, the, right. It's, then, it's a classic where a character has information that the audience has, but they should have, like, who's president in 1985? Ronald Reagan. But how, what are the chances of the president in 30 years being someone you would know? Um, so, yeah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I think um, the the other thing, I've got lots of thoughts and takes and everything on the glaive itself, Sheps. I mean, it would take your fingers off, surely, catching that motherfucker. I mean, you know, you'd have yeah. to... Or just holding it. You extend the blades, it slits your wrists open. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Jimmy, though, in Park Mead's playground, I can at least attest, in 1983 and onwards, people fucking loved the glaive to, in, to, the, to a lightsaber extent. People fucking loved the glaive. And when they talked about crawl, they were like, and all of that. So it's always been really cool. And I've always thought it's very, very impractical, like you say. Was it the same with you, little Jimmy, in 83? Or I guess, I mean, if you didn't see it till 85, were you aware that the glaive was happening around you? I, I was never a glaive head, Sheps. I've got to be mm. honest. I, I didn't get the, the glaive bracelet. I didn't get the, like, oh. you know, the discus. Well, you need the bracelet for medical emergencies with that fucker. Um, but yes, fair enough. Fair can enough. You, People like, love the glaive. Can I ask you, like, a practical question? Is he in control of it, Colwyn, or does it have a mind of its own? Like, right. he does he does his best hand sort of acting -y thing, right. you know, <laughs> and then sometimes doesn't yes. even bother with the hand acting, which is amazing. Um, and then, like, <laughs> so, like, that's sort of going on a bit. Um, sometimes he's being super passive. Just, but, but is he sort of pretending to control it just to impress the princess, but really it's right. kind of on its own? 
Yeah, and I'll you're following it with your hand, and then it does its own thing, and you have to sort of catch up, and <laughs> she catches you, and you know she's caught you, but you have to castanza it and keep doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I think it does its own thing, and Colwyn is just fucking hanging on for dear life, exactly. trying to look cool. Yeah, we're aligned on that. That makes me really happy. Funny, that is very funny to me, and that makes me really (laughs) happy. And I've gone exactly down that route in the second for me as well. So that's That's really nice. (laughs) Um, Shout out to Colwyn, who's played by this actor Ken Marshall, who was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine um, on and off, but was an important character for a few seasons. Commander Eddington. So, so there you go. So good for him. Amazing. And yeah, yeah, he was. He's he's got moments. I really like. Like he's sometimes really sincere and like happy. He does a really sort of interesting. Like it's a bit like Luke in the award ceremony, or like little moments of Luke in a New Hope. Like he's got this sort of boyish charm about him right. sometimes. Yeah, but but bless him. Like anyway, but yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. have a problem with Colwyn or Ken Marshall. Um, no, but, you, but I said earlier he was bland, and he is a bit. He's no Flash, but. Yeah, he's he's not an embarrassment. <laughs> he's he's, he's you know, you're right. I never want to be him. He's never quite. Maybe at the beginning when he first gets the glaive and climbs the mountain and stuff. Okay, right. that's him being cool and the swamp. He's being cool, but other than that, he's never really cool again, is he? Let's be honest. I, I for that's me, valid. yeah. But um, anyway, well, one other thing I'll quickly mention about the glaive in the film, it does its own thing and all of that. It is ultimately, forgetting the design flaw that's going to take your hand off and all of that as well, it is ultimately quite useless. Like, it goes through the thing and it's like, hooray, it's Colwyn and the Glaive, and, you know, and you're like, okay, fine, and it cuts through. And it goes into the beast, but it doesn't kill the beast. In fact, it almost gets Colwyn killed. And then it's like, they leave it there, right? They, they, they kill the beast with their love fire, and they fuck off, and their rock ship flies up into the air, presumably with the Glaive. Like, oh, okay. For the record, I don't address that at all. I could probably put a line in to explain. But either way, they're very disrespectful of the Glaive. And actually, the Glaive is shit. And it seems to me they probably, if they were going to do that, and again, this is just Hollywood studio shit, but if they were going to do that, they could set up the Glaive as like a false idol, and it's all coveted, and it's a real the one ring, since they're influenced anyway. And then it turns out to be shit, and he has to use true love fire instead. And they make the conscious choice. Oh, and by the way, have Nissa do it as well. Even if she's shit all the way through, don't just have Colwyn fire the love fire. Have them both do it anyway. Never mind. That's my point about the Glaive. I still love it. I am still Team Glaive. I am a Glaive head. But it is worth saying it is useless. Can I say one thing there, Ben? I, I, I had operated, and it's a key like MacGuffin for mine, that on the assumption that at the end the glaive had done its little thing and had sort of shimmied out of there at the very end and back yeah. in the pocket like, yeah. so they could all leave with well, it well that's fine but, you, yeah. we can both have a line because if, if you do watch it and it never comes back you could say I knew the day when it spun back from space <laughs> and found me that we were linked forever <laughs> you know so that's fine we're fine that's okay um, I've only got Two more things to say. One is just just a decent baddie jump scare at the end to to yeah. uh, Marcus. You know it's going to happen, but yeah. it's great. Nice, and and we've done it actually already. But Alan Armstrong's Torkel is by some distance yeah. my favorite character, so that's nice. And uh, yes, yeah. I know. Um, the guy who gets skewered 
when they're lying in the Indiana Jones room at the end and the spikes come out and he gets it really, really yeah, slowly through his belly. Yeah, that's a good That's one. horrific. And every time someone gets stabbed, you really, and it's great acting, it's like you really push that blade in. It's real, a lot of resistance. And you get it in, it's shaking, the handle shaking, and it's horrible into the bellies. It's like brave hot. It's not just like pow. Um, and again, it's just like a nice touch. Makes me very happy. Now, Sheps, I'm going to do a world first for me, if you'll permit me and indulge me. Yes. I had one other little tiny idea for a pitch that I wanted to just give you a paragraph of. Is that all right? Oh, God, yes. do that? Please, like, God. So well, how, what a hypocrite I would be if I said, no, that's not all right, actually. <laughs> well, After the fiascos I've put you through. No fiascos. But this is your call. You know, it's your pitch. But I don't, so I don't want to like go first into something. I'm just, or trend anything. But it's just a small thing that occurred to me that no, could be quite that's... cool as an idea. And like, um, so th this is this is just a paragraph of it, right? So one idea for a sequel would be to have a very, very grounded, earthy, right now, Liam Neeson, like 2023, Liam Neeson vehicle called Beast, right? And in this, he's battling a mythical wolf creature, a bit like he did a wolf one, didn't he, as well? But anyway, and it's a bit... Oh, yeah, the wolf one. It's called the wolf one, I think. <laughs> and, uh, Punch a wolf. Punch a bloody wolf. He's got very special skills, and very special fans. Anyway, um, so uh, particular skills. See if you're going to do a stupid quote, Jimmy, get it right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he's battling a mythical wolf creature. That's it. It's basically the plot of it, predator style. And he's protecting nice. his village. Character over the course of the movie is never referred to by name until the wolf is finally defeated. Man versus beast, brutal tussle in the woods that reveals... That the beast was linked to a bigger beast, and Neeson, battered and bruised, tells his wife he must warn the king. And his wife understands and gives it the old safe ride, Keegan, and we hear his name. And as he gallops off on his horse, we then get flashbacks in the last fifth of the movie to a perfectly de aged Keegan waking, almost fatally injured, on the Krull set, hauling himself up and surviving the end of Krull after all. Keegan arrives at the palace and we have an aged Ken and an aged Lizette as he delivers the news and the whole thing has been a split-style sequel to Crush. Yes! And uh, I thought that would be quite a cool way to go these days. Like, that's you know, so yeah. great. Yeah. Oh, that's a tasty, meaty morsel. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, yeah, I love cool it. There. Jimmy, throw away. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jimmy. Yes, a thousand times yes. Yes, please. I actually have a few notes, which I think I've said, but I'm just going to go through mine, if that's okay, about the film. Mm. Um, uh, for the record, by the way, I mentioned, is it 10,000 years or one week or whatever? In in my sequel, the canon in, in this universe is the beasts have been on crawl for about a year. And in that time, the warring families were forced to join and all of that sort of stuff. Oh, and also, it was the beast's breed, his like species or family, who tricked the Cyclops, not this specific beast. So, so there you go. So that's that. And the Cyclops do come from beyond the stars, and lots of people come from beyond the stars. And space travel is not weird. They're all aware of it. You know, when the beast arrived, they were like, what the fuck? They were like, oh, no, it's one of those fucking aliens. So, so there you go. Uh, and also an observation of life, I've written. There are no famous Jedi, only famous wizards. Um, you, know, you don't hear people going on about Obi-Wan. Everyone's forgotten about him after a few years. Gandalf, for one, people talk about, he's legend. Yenir, for another. 
um, in your near out the other. In the first oh film, God. oh yeah, I know, sorry about that. I did, that was, that was off the cuff, if you can believe that. Um, oh yeah, no, yeah. Okay, yes, and that's fine. I was talking, um, yeah, I, li I like the fact, yeah, just the other thing, fantasy, sci-fi kind of like system together, um, it works. Um, oh, and by the way, I'm really glad I did rewatch it because I knew the, the voiceover at the beginning and end was like, they will rule the planet and their children will rule the galaxy. And I remember as a kid always being like, what the fuck does that mean? Uh, so I guess I've answered my own question actually now, but I always thought their children so when I came up with the first seed of my sequel, I thought children. And then when I watched it, it was Sun will rule the galaxy. Although of course it has to be Sun, um, because you know why? Because Lisa didn't do anything. Uh, so I, oh, so I had to sort of do a very very tiny jig. But I'm glad I I, I found out about that because that's that's a little thing. And by the way, I was going to call my sequel Children of Kroll, but it's already got enough Dune ripoffs, so I I didn't. And, uh, that's interesting. But well, I, yeah. it's valid. Well, it's going in a very specific, you know, that end thing, it does say, you know, uh, you know, see, so you don't, yeah. So, yes. Well, in any case, the other thing, I, I mentioned this to my brother, Stu, and he um, sort of was like, um, it'd be a nice to see the Beast and Ming hanging out. And this led to, like, what if they're just hanging out and it's like the nothing from Never Ending Story, like in a jar. And then I just sort of, I sort of now see this like being a TV show about the back room of a bar and it's like a weekly poker night and Ming and Beast and Jareth and James Old Jones from Conan and the and Evil from Time Bandits and Jean Marsh from anything she made in the 80s, but let's say Willow. But she could also play the same character she played in Battlefield, that episode I mentioned earlier. Um, all these and more playing cards, telling a story of what happened to them that week and we have like a Ming episode or a Beast episode, etc., with bookends and sort of resolution to the plot unfolding with all the main characters and stuff in some way participating in the bar at the end each week. Uh, so there you are. So there's like a little extra thing as well, which is tasty and happy and hooray for life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Good stuff. And you can think of like all of those characters from all the 80s fantasies, all like kind of you know, hanging out yeah that's nice stuff uh love it so with no further ado approaching the two hour mark so far so we're we're, we're, <laughs> we're doing well we're doing well um, shall we get to the pictures me old sailor let's do it let's do it chef hey one other thing i just want to mention which i wrote down here um this first film crawl it's the avengers of the universe you got qui-gon you got hagrid you got Commander Eddington. You got Lady Jessica. You got George Kovich, which is perchance that disease is black from Wild at Heart. Good old Freddie Jones. You got Mr. Havez from Mummy Returns. You got Gort the Giant from Hawk the Slayer, which, by the way, is Breslov. He was also in Hawk the Slayer as Gort the Giant. And fucking Tucker Jenkins. And Angie from Three Up, Two Down. It's um, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing. And you can swap out Hagrid for Cracker, Qui-Gon for Schindler. Um, I'm all for it. Go for it. So um, I'm a big fan. A big fan. Nice, yes. Well, look, come on in. Let's return to Kroll uh, by right. Media of Sheppy's uh, Word document. Lovely. All right.
Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Lovely. Um, so this is, by the way, 1989. Mm -hmm. So a little bit. Yes, yes. And there's a reason for that because of certain casting I wanted. Um, it's directed by John McKenzie. Uh, now, he is an English director who directed The Long Good Friday in the Fourth Protocol. So that's my, my choice for gritty British director making a fantasy. Uh, the title is Rings of Kroll. Not the, by the way. I think it's just going to be Rings of Kroll. Um, but it might be the Rings of Kroll. Depends what country. Uh, now, it stars Ken Marshall, Lizette Anthony. Freddie Jones in voiceover, really needlessly, actually. Um, and I've got Barrett Oliver. You know him? Does the name ring a bell? Jog me, Sheps. Should it take me He's back? He's the kid from the 80s who isn't Fred Savage. He's oh, Daryl. Yeah. He's Neverending yeah, Story. He's Cocoon. Yeah, okay, nice. Yeah. yeah. He's that. in Knight Rider. He's in The Hulk. And he retired shortly after Cocoon Returns, um, which, wow. by the way, was 89, which is what this is. Anyway, so he's in it, and he would have been 16, um, which is which is good. And I've also got Kate Beckinsdale, because she would have been 16, I think. Um, now, Much Ado About Nothing was her first film, and this is some years, four years, I think, before that. But what can you do? In this universe, she got this gig. Um, I've also got Robert Stevens. He's the baddie. He's Abner from uh, Box of Delights. He's a very big theatrical Shakespearean actor who was married to Maggie Smith and their kid is Toby Stevens. So there you go. I've uh, got Richard Griffiths, just because I kept seeing him in Pie on the Sky last weekend, and so he's in my mind. Uh, I've got Joanna Lumley, so there you go. I've got Robert Lindsay, so there's more, but I'm not going to say now because it's, I don't want to ruin certain nice happy moments, but I will also say it's and Mark Hamill. This is, because I just thought, why not? It's 1989. He does, he does this film instead of Slipstream. So, so there you go. Oh, and, you know, I will also say, and this is usually the case with my sequels, in this universe, Prol, you know, 1983 was the summer of Prol. Return of the what? It was, um, it was all about Kroll that year. So, so this film is, you know, it's, it's big. Um, so there you go. So on the twin sun planet of Kroll, um, Colwyn and Lissa, basically, just to give you the broad strokes, Colwyn and Lissa have two kids, boy and girl, uh, maybe twins, maybe the son is older by a year, um, and it's about 18 years later, even though it's only made in 89, uh, I don't care, um, it's like the kids are now basically nearing their 16th birthday, and I'm assuming they governed and settled things before getting her up the duff. So I'm going to say it's 18 years later, and um, the kids are now like 16 or something. Oh, yeah, they're approaching the 16th birthday. Um, now, uh, oh, and uh, Kroll has been ruled in peace over these 15, 16, 17 years. Uh, they have trade and commerce and relationships with neighbouring planets in the galaxy, a unity formed after the beast was vanquished. So we have a pre-cred, Jimmy, a pre-cred. Black, and we fade up on space, and we move through the stars as the voiceover starts. And as this continues, we find Kroll, now shown in all its glory, with a double band of rings surrounding it. Rings of Kroll? Yes, 
Now, I can't tell you how happy I was when I watched Kroll and you see Kroll from space, but it, you only see the top quarter, you never see the whole planet. That I was thinking when I watched it, oh, I hope that, it has, you know, I mean, I'll have to come up with something like since the rings formed these last decade, you know, some shit like that. But luckily, no, you only see a quarter of it. So hooray. Um, so we, we move in on Kroll and we see that and it's like a double band. They're both on the same level. It's not like flippity flop, horizontal, vertical. They're both uh, vertical, but they're sort of one slightly above the other. So it's like kind of a cool double ring sound on Kroll. Um, so we move towards the planet, um, and first one sun emerges from behind a moon, then the other sun from behind Kroll itself. And during all of this, we have a voiceover, which really should be Mark Hamill's voiceover. But I love Freddie Jones, and I love Yanir. So, and I wasn't sure, I think, when I started doing this, that if Yanir was going gonna, to gonna come back as a horse ghost, because why the fuck not? But um, spoiler, he doesn't. But voiceover, Yanir. Uh, a son to rule, a daughter to rise. These were the rules. These were the words spoken since the rings of Kroll had not yet formed and its crust had yet to cool. But all meanings have chapters and all truths have journeys. A foe vanquished, an army rising between the stars. Like night follows day and darkness swallows light. Here lies the fate of the living and the deeds of the dead. And at the centre of this fight for peace and this war for love lies Kroll. And we kick into some fucking Horner and his trumpets and the titles come up. And we move through space now, classic style is the, um, as the credits roll. And we see now the five key planets in this particular galaxy uh, as the credits play. Some of these planets who play an important role in the plot. Some are huge, some are tiny. Uh, some of many moons, uh, each has its own colour and look. One is blue, one's red, one's green, purple, and one white, with hints of like unique landscapes from each as we're sort of glimpsing them from space. The end of the credits, and we have the landscape of Kroll, and it's all very beautiful, and it's lush and nice. The Grand Palace sits between the mountains, and then the throne room we see, and the court of the King and Queen of Kroll. We see Colwyn and Lyssa, uh, who are basically the same. I think he probably has the tiniest flecks of silver in his beard. She's fucking identical. Uh, you know, well, it's like, you know, a, a little bit later, six years in real life. But perhaps, you know, she holds herself regally. She's wiser, more confident, more experienced. And we meet their chief advisors, including the chief seer, uh, who's counsel to the king and queen. He's quote-unquote scientist, Rogan, and he's played by Mark Hamill, who would have been like in his 30s by this point, I assume. Um, he is smooth and smart and seems to have a, the twinkle in his eye of a man with secrets. Uh, so through his initial discourse with King and Queen, uh, the, uh, we and the rest of the council, we learn through flawless and immediate exposition, the setup of players, the position of Kroll in the galaxy, the impending coronation for the new ruler, and the vital elements contained in the rings around Kroll. We do have a bit of a spices life type situation. To it, the planet Kroll has rings which contain these elements that can power and energize organic matter. Rocks and earth, great trees, frozen bergs, even whole mountain ranges. 
the alchemy of these elements, when correctly harnessed, will remove all inertia from these natural elements, giving them energy, movement, and momentum. Some call it old magic, some call it new science, but all come from the rings. Uh, elements such as these are what powered the beasts, like flying rock palace ship. Um, and this is how I sort of got past, how do we have some sort of, inter how does anyone rule a galaxy? They can't have spaceships, it doesn't work. So that's that's what I sort of thought, you know, sort of weird organic things that you can point and shoot. Um, and they're all cut from various planets' geography. So thus, Kroll is a key strategic point in the galaxy due to these rings. There are other planets with other forms of this mineral, this element, but the rings contain the densest source by far. Uh, but other galaxies can move around a bit, other planets. Outside of the five key planets of this galaxy, all planets in the universe that house these elements have either been or yet may be conquered and mined by the family of the beast and their servants, the reavers and their cohorts. Um, and this is what they do. The family of beasts, um, they, they send out like different beasts to different planets. And this is you know, what we saw in Kroll. They land, they conquer, uh, they take a fucking bride uh, just, you know, like you would if you were like colonizing Africa and you get a local and then you promise her everything and then you fuck off after you've destroyed everything and you've corrupted her and broken her and then you're like, right, on to the next planet. So that's the beast's lot, really. Colvin and Lissa have spent their rule in supplying these minerals to others, to other planets, thus connecting the planets and building a galactic unity. Uh, the beasts um, are basically captains or generals. Uh, of a larger commanding power called the Shade or the Dark Shade, who's something ancient and beyond anything comprehensible. Um, over the eons, the beasts have been sent out to do all this shit, to mine, to basically get as many of these elements as possible to dominate the galaxy. Intergalactic domination is the name of the game by getting all of these elements from all the planets in the universe that has it. Uh, there are many beasts controlling many worlds, and all are servants of the shade. Um, um, so that's nice. Um, and uh, chief scientist Rogan, Mark Hamill, um, is like, you know, saying about how that, you know, they, they're all working, everyone's ruling planets and shit. And he says, well, to control the planets is to control the galaxy. And to control the galaxy is the first step to unlocking the universe's most ancient power to transcend all matter, life, consciousness, to rule reality itself. I don't know what accent Hamill's going to have, so you can insert. He's probably going to ham it up. I don't He's know just grateful Hamill. that he got the gig, you know, having been second fiddle in believe of like, 83. Yeah. But, you know. That's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was just, he couldn't believe it. He was so happy. Um, this is what the Shade has been seeking since before time began, and he's never been so close. Colwyn and Lissa have son and daughter. Um, the daughter is uh, Vanari, and the son is Risa. Um, after ruling Kroll for almost two decades, all is well. Relations and friendships have reached, uh, been reached with many of the surrounding planets in the solar system. And upon Risa and Vanari's uh, 16th birthday, Risa will be coronated, uh, coronated as Galaxy's King and will rule this unity of planets. Colwyn has led fights and rebellions against other beast-controlled planets in his time, 
as well as fighting evil, like homegrown dictators, uh, loan sharks, mafia places growing up on Kroll, forces of man intent on achieving power and rule, as well as the darker forces of the cosmos. And this has been a Dark Horse comic series in the 80s after the huge success of Kroll. Well, so this is a lot of popular backstory. And it, you know, maybe there was a cartoon show about it as well. Owen and Lyssa have formed an alliance between these worlds, fighting back against ty tyrants of all kinds. Uh, Lyssa has opened communication and trade, friendship, treaties with countless worlds and has become high ambassador to the stars. There's been a vote and Reesum, as first son to the royalty of Kroll, has been chosen to further unite all planets, all to fight under one rule against the forces that would enslave them. So, after this opening scene in the royal court, we cut and we introduce both siblings at once, uh, establishing their distinct personalities and lifestyle choices. He is very much upstairs, she is very much downstairs. Uh, Iris Stark, I guess, we see their relationship is not particularly close, but they have the bond of both being siblings from a tight family. Um, their relationship is not strained, they are easy in each other's company, but they're not friends and they never have been. Now we meet Reeston, this is um, Daryl, you know. uh, he is handsome, smart, athletic, charismatic and trained since birth to rule. He has a sharp mind, although usually studious, he is occasionally cheeky. Due to his parents' duties, most of his teaching, including how to rule, has come from Minister Haven, who's played by Robert Stevens, a tall, reedy man who served many prime ministers, dukes and emperors in the past from many planets. He has served loyally as the tutor to this boy to be king most of Reeson's life. We also now meet Benari. She is cheeky, spirited, spiky, and far less charming than her brother. Uh, she's not a tomboy, I do want to stress. She has lived in her legendary parents and her heir, you know, the heir to the throne and her brother's shadow all her life, and thus sees herself as other and apart, separate from the kingdom and indeed the family. Um, and she's not interested in the niceties of court either. She always saw her parents' destiny and her brother's destiny as something very different. And, you know, she's loved, but she is aware she remains a spare. She's a puppy bought for loyalty, uh, novelty and then forgotten about. She's not bitter because this is the only life she's ever known and it's not a bad life, but she is uh, emotionally removed from everything that matters to the king and queen, planet and galaxy. Oh, and she also has a pet. This is a studio note, but what can you do? Uh, she has a pet, Flobo, who is a large white mouse thing that can sort of walk on its hind legs with massive ears and a pink twitching nose that communicates with squeaks and squawks, and it's a Muppet puppet. Uh, we also established that Minister Haven is very strict in his teachings with Reeson, uh, but much more lenient to the sister, which annoys Reeson. And he's not really interested in teaching the sister and always lets her get away with skiving. He's very, very strict with reason. Uh, also, in a 16 candles maneuver, we learn that, of course, everyone's focusing on her brother's birthday. So, yes, they are twins. They're all focusing on uh, the brother's uh, and the upcoming coronation. And no one has even considered the fact that it's Benari's birthday as well. Uh, and the, but the kitchen staff of the castle have made her a cake. And the stable lads, scullery maids, and some of the palace guards, including lifelong friend of Venari, palace guard Gorman, who's likeable and avuncular, all throw her a mini party the night before the coronation in the palace kitchen. 
Lobo steals a huge chunk and in a ho-ho-ho moment. Benari chases him out of the kitchen and runs smack into scientist Rogan, you know, Mark Hamill. Um, and, you know, she gets a large slap of cake on his official cloak. He's very curt with her. We learn that he is never nice to her and clearly doesn't like her. Uh, while this is going on upstairs, that we have a scene between Reesom and Colwyn. It's the night before the coronation. It's his birthday. He's just turned 16. And as they walk through the palace, it's all empty and everything, and it's night. And they stop before a large golden display case with a glass window. And inside, sitting on a royal cushion, is the glaive. And we're told Colwyn only uses this for the greatest emergencies and battles and so forth. And in a nice Mufasa and Simba moment, Colwyn tells Reesom that when he is king, the glaive will no longer be Colwyn's, but Reesom's, to control and to use for the good of all who need it. Uh, so this is all the setup and payoff, all players established, leading to the day of the coronation taking place off-world in the celestial palace of the galaxy which is sort of like an ancient, huge, beautiful space tree of sorts. In the same way, you know, beast ship with rock, this is like this colossal tree with roots and vines and tangled petrified branches, all linked by a mammoth trunk of sorts hanging in space at the center of the five planets of power. Inside, it's like a triple city um, and it's vast. We see the main throne chamber is cavernous, extremely lush, and filled with all heads of state and dignitaries and blah, 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 ruling families and representatives of all planets, so they're all present, very grand affair, standing on the stage before the masses, uh, not just of Kroll, but of uh, all of the galaxy. We have Colwyn and Lyssa, uh, the king and queen of Kroll, as well as other rulers of other planets and so forth, and also the kids are there, um, and they all pledge allegiance to this new king. Now we uh, cut to space. Uh, the tree palace hangs with dignity in the cold vacuum when a shadow falls over it as a shape draws near, sending creeping shadow to cover the palace in darkness. And back inside, Venari is putting on a brave face and having to act nice and look nice, yet be totally ignored. And her friend, Gorman the guard, is standing formally to attention next to her on the stage. And then a little twitching nose, and then the head of Flobo pops out of the folds of Venari's very large dress. And uh, she quickly pushes his head back down, and then quickly, you know, guiltily makes eye contact with Gorman, and they both quickly look away, desperately suppressing their smiles. Reesom, meanwhile, is handling everything very professionally, taking the crown, saying a speech, and the crown is placed on his head, and everyone is cheering, and a trap is sprung. Attack! Reapers and slayers and ravagers and slinkers, stinkers, slimers and sloppers, they all descend, storm the throne room and kill a lot of people. Some uh, of these things have like bubbling black flesh, others have green veins on bone white skin, others have long lolling black tongues, all are cunts. Uh, so they storm in, it's a pandemonium, all exits are blocked, all soldiers have you know, been kept away from the main centre anyway, and everyone else is just in ceremonial garb, so they don't have any proper weapons. Uh, they're slaughtered like fish in a barrel by slayers, eel faces and tongue men surrounding everyone. Colwyn and Lissa and the others fight with shouts of, protect the king, 
During the anarchy and panic, Resum is taken back away from the trouble, but Venari is jostled and lost in the confusion. Colwyn is fighting the hordes and uh, orders Minister Haven to get Resum and Venari out. Uh, as more nasties storm the throne room, uh, Colwyn, with his sword and everything, is like hacking away. Um, and Lissa shouts across the chaos to Colwyn, Colwyn, the glaive! And Colwyn reacts and he's ah, and then takes a moment and then purposely does the Jimmy maneuver and stretches out his arm. And on crawl far below, far away, uh, we move in on the gold display case, and behind the glass, the glaive starts to vibrate and shake, then flies through, smashing out of the case and out across the room, then through a window out of the palace, and we cut to outside the palace. We see the glaive fly up, spin straight up into the sky. We see crawl from the atmosphere and the glaive shoots up and spins past the camera through the clouds and out into space. Uh, in the galactic tree palace in space, Colwyn fights and Lissa steps up. She's the only one not to panic or freeze, instead opening a back door and shouting for anyone who can hear to run and flee and get out and get away. And she takes many of the noble guests and families and children and frantically shepherds them out, leading them away from the carnage. As she helps members from the different families, Banari uh, is desperately still trying to get to her parents, but she's like lost and alone in the confusion and panic. She clutches Flobo, who is as freaked out as she is. We cut back to space. We see the glaive spinning through the void. Then back to the palace. Venari is jostled and must avoid being stampeded. A hand grabs her arm and pulls her to a quiet back corridor. And we see it is right scientist Rogan Hamill. And he says her brother and Minister Haven are fleeing to the central vestibule, um, sort of a stronghold, a panic room of sorts in the centre. And he's got to take her, take her to them. And we cut to this room as Reesom and Haven seal the door. It's a small room protected from all sides and outside it's surrounded by guards as the horde close and swarm and attack and destroy and loyal soldiers outnumbered, most wearing just like rubbish ceremonial garb, uh, are not equipped for this and they are having a hard time. Um, and Banari's friend Gorman the guard is there. He gets thrown, he gets knocked down. One of these nasty reaper things it like holds his face down onto the floor as another reaver across the room is killed and it screeches, its head cracks open and the slug thing shoots out from inside and then skitters across the, the polished floor straight at Gorman who screams just before it shoots into his face. In space we see the galactic tree palace and the glaive spinning towards it and this huge sort of thing above which obviously is where all these nasties have come from. The glaive reaches the outside and starts spinning and cutting through the wood, quote unquote, to get inside. Inside the carnage continues. People are stabbed horribly, uh, shot, skewered, decapitated, crushed, maimed, and one has his face licked off by a tongue thing. Lissa uh, gets many of the group to a large room, but this itself is a trap and the far wall is blown and she screams, turn back, get out but it's too late and a vast number of the gentry are blown en masse out into space. Lister manages to seal the door and she and some others escape just in time uh, and flee. Colwyn fights, but he and his troops are being swamped. Then the glaive bursts through the wall and spins around the room as loyal guard shouts, your majesty, the glaive. 
Colwyn looks up from mid-sword fight and sees, and it spins around the room twice, and then into Colwyn's outstretched hand. He immediately turns and throws it, and it spins again, this time in a semicircle, moving through the room, cutting down through dozens of slayers as it goes, and then back to Colwyn, who immediately spins and throws it again, cutting down swathes of the nasties, and for the first time there is hope. Meanwhile, Venari and Hamel rush down the bending and twisting corridors, avoiding scenes of slaughter or nasty slayer things. Hamel uses some sort of ancient spell to halt a ravager in mid-charge after it spots them, and he kind of uses an energy wave to push it back through a, a thin, tiny crack, um, making it liquefy and ooze out into space where it dissipates. Back to the palace, Colwyn has fought hard and makes it inside the vestibule containing Reesom and, and Haven. And Colwyn, panting and all you know, roughed up, is like, where's Venari? And Haven, she's coming, my lord. Scientist Rogan has her. And then suddenly the room explodes and it's breached as one door and then another explodes and all the nasties start to get in. And Colwyn, there's no time. Take Reesom. I'll find my daughter. And Haven, Surely it would be prudent to wait for your majesty's daughter too. And Colwyn, fighting with his sword but being pushed back by the crushing hordes, he says, The back passage! Go! With creatures infiltrating the vestibule, the soldiers are picked off one by one. Colwyn, still flashing his sword, fighting back two slimers, shouts over his shoulder, Go! Take the boy! Clang, clang, clang! Colwyn kills one, two, five. He's doing very well and the Slimers are slowly falling back. Colwyn, unable to turn as he fights, calls over his shoulder to Haven. Haven, the passage! Are you able to flee? And he pauses, getting no answer. And he calls again. Haven? And behind Colwyn, we see Reeson watching the fight. And behind Reeson, we see the tutor, Minister Haven, as he starts the bubble. And it's only a bloody twist, maybe. But Haven reveals his true form in a gross and nightmare-inducing scene. Uh, as his form expands, his, his skin stretches and then splits, and we see close-ups of the, spl uh, the split pink skin and dark oozing flesh beneath. And it's goodbye to Robert Stevens as his skin splits entirely and black, almost liquid flesh seeps out. The skin falls away entirely as the wet flesh oozes, grows, expands, forms, and is revealed that Haven is a beast in human skin. Now Colwyn turns and sees, and he can only stare as the back end of the room is just slowly filled up by the expanding and rising beast. And the beast opens his mouth and he kills almost everyone in the room, horribly. He's like batting people into walls, he's crushing people in his hands, he's firing those energy bolts like, out of his mouth. Um, he's killing everyone. Um, for a beat, there's nothing but smoke. The, the massive beast now takes Reeson by the uh, shoulder, who's just like not even moving, and with a massive and grotesque black claw hand thing, leads him out, and they disappear down and away through another twisting corridor, um, now clear of the living. And then we hold on the empty room and all the smoke and debris and dead bodies, and then classic, battered and bloody, Cohen emerges from a pile of bodies and he gives chase. It's anarchy out there. Those who are not dead are dying or fleeing. Cohen sees Lissa in the throng and she screams, save Reesom! So he flees after the new king and his dark tutor. Gets to them, alone in the palace as the sounds of attack can still be heard all around but now fainter. 
and Colwyn brandishes the glaive and he confronts the beast. And Colwyn says, you made a mistake. My son is not a prize to be stolen. You've already lost. And the beast laughs and Colwyn brandishes the glaive. The blades come out. The beast stops laughing. Colwyn grins savagely and he throws it at the beast. And it spins, it flies, it curves around the room. Then it shoots straight at the beast's face. And then Reesom reaches out, extends his hand, and before it strikes the beast, Reesom catches the glaive. And he looks at his father, who stares back, not able to comprehend. And then Reesom smiles, and then he throws the glaive at his father. And it spins, and it slices right across Colwyn's chest. And then it spins around him and slices down across his back. And then it slices around again and around across the back of his legs. And Colwyn goes down. And even now he can't compute. And the glaive spins and circles back into Reesom's hand. And Colwyn watches, looking at Reesom with deep confusion and horror. And the beast standing behind Reesom laughs again. And Colwyn, Reesom, fight back. Don't let him control you. And Reesom seems confused for a second. And then he sort of laughs and says, oh, father, he does not control me. I control him. And his eyes bloody glow. And, he, and Colwyn finally twi twigs. Reeson has not been corrupted or controlled. He has been a tainted seed since birth. And this is his moment. And that's why I wanted Barrett Oliver, because no one's going to see this coming. And I don't want him to play it nasty at all. I, I want it to be like, a fuck, what a twist. And he throws the glaive again. I don't want any of the advertising. I'm going to really put, I'm going to be Alan Smithy at the studio, give it away in the adverts. And he throws the glaive again and it slices into Colwyn. And the beast fires an energy blast from his mouth and it hits Colwyn in the chest, sending him flying in terrible condition, beaten and battered and bloody and done. And Reeson catches the glaive one last time and then holds back his arm and prepares to throw it at his father. When then Hamill's Rogan steps in, he sees everything. He's got Venari. She screams. Reeson turns, sees them, and he locks eyes with his sister, who stares back in uncomprehending terror. Reeson smiles, and he throws the glaive right at her, spinning straight to her face. The scientist Rogan shoots another sort of energy beam, deflecting the glaive at the last second, sending it spinning past her, and it spins away, and Reeson controls its movement much better than his father, and it circles the room once, and on his knees, Colwyn now sort of struggles up and looks at his daughter, and Benari stares back at Colwyn, and Colwyn says, Benari, I'm... And then the glaive flies straight into his chest, impaling Colwyn through the heart. And Benari oh. screams, Colwyn goes down, he's fucking dead. Whoa. Rogan, I'm as surprised as anyone. <laughs> Rogan... Rogan grabs Benari, and they flee as the beast shoots another blast at their backs, but they tear out a corner, and the blast explodes the wall. And Reesom looks calmly at the beast, who looks back at him, and the beast says, your sister flees. And Reesom says, then kill her faster. And Rogan takes Venari, tearing down the narrow, twisting back roots in the exploding and crumbling wood palace. And with Reavers ahead and behind, Rogan presses his hand to a wall, which opens, revealing a pod of sorts, just as the wall explodes and the beast emerges behind him. And he turns to face the beast, wary, powerful, defiant, and the beast shoots a beam. Rogan deflects, but then the glaive spins out of the smoke, slices deeply across Rogan's arm and shoulder, making him stagger. And he looks done for when Venari leans out of the vessel, 
grabs Rogan's collar, wrenching him back in just as the door closes, reseals, and the craft, which kind of shoots out from the side of the space palace, looks a bit like an acorn, but it's like the size of a double-decker, and it shoots out from the side um, out into space. And so we have it. Resum is now ruler of the galaxy. He has the beast as his high counselor or chancellor, and both are in service of the dark shade. The shade has always seen the bad seed in Resum, and thus beast helped get him to power to crush this united galaxy from the inside, to have a king corrupt, to destroy the unity, the alliance, and the fight is for good. And beast, who now who still speaks in um, Robert Stevens' voice, is like, divided they crumble and fall to dust. And so then in the little pod, uh, Hamill, you know, Rogan, is, you know, he's all fucked up, but he's not, you know, he's, he's bandaging himself and rub, rubbing weird ointment upon him. And uh, he tells Venari, you know, Resum was not corrupted, but born with a corruption all of his own. Um, so we see the, the fucked up uh, remains of the palace, which is now becoming rotten. It's like an old evil Grim Brothers tree now. Um, corrupted by the infestation uh, from within, a deep black mold is sort of starting to slowly eat out and you know corrupt everything. And the roots and the branches are all getting like fucked up as well. Um, inside is equally all fucked up and nasty and moldy now and rotten. And uh, Lissa is held with other royalty and other noble families from all the central palettes for ransom and leverage to make sure the planets fall into line as Reeson's troops now swarm the galaxy. And she is shown Colwyn's demise, and she is naturally devastated. Uh, whenever we cut back to her throughout the film, which is there every so often, uh, we have tense scenes as she clandestinely starts a whispered beginning of a rebellion. Some of her fellows and ladies-in-waiting are sacrificed and murdered horribly. One of the council members, and this is Richard Griffiths, is revealed at some point to be corrupt and informer and collaborator with the Beast and Reeson, resulting in much of the gentry's murders, and he is killed horribly before the end, by Reeson probably for some perceived failure. But your majesty, no, I serve to live. Yeah, that sort of shit. Um, or oh, I, I live to serve, in fact. So it's Reeson uh, versus Venari. Venari now must fight her brother and the beast and the grand threat of the great shade dwelling beyond the stars. Uh, in their basic but stable vessel, Rogan tells Venari he was tricked. They were all tricked. Venari uh, is beside herself, crying after her dead father. And it's a moment reminiscent of the first when Colwyn is crying. And Hamill berates her, telling her, female blubbering never helped a dead king or saved a lost friend. Now that the shade has revealed its existence to the universe, this ancient power, Rogan says the only thing that can stop such a deity is a power as old as he is. They must harness the most ancient sorcery, itself believed to be a myth until this very moment, that which existed when the shade himself was still being formed in the heart of the universe's conception. These are all tied to the elements housed within the rings of Kroll. Kroll has the densest vein of these elements, but other planets have lesser but still potent sources, some found in fire or ice, water and air, uh, but hidden among the source of this power are the five segments of energy, crystallized shards of the minerals that make up the rings. Spread across the galaxy, these five condensed and compacted shards, when brought together, will form one giant crystal containing all the power of the ring of Kroll, 
and this is the only thing that can stop the beast and their master. With Reesom now in power, they cannot return to Kroll, but must find the location of the first four of these five shards, long since lost as the galaxy was still forming. So to find the location of these four shards, uh, they must travel to this place called Ranseed, which is a half-forgotten moon of dust and death at the edge of the galaxy, to seek audience with the voice in the cave, who will test the seeker of truth. Uh, and of course, it won't end well if they get all the questions wrong. Yes, this is the treat. This is the top to bottom treat, man. Flipping it. I don't know how you do it, mate. I really don't know how you do it. I don't know how you come up with all these different, like the little the details on the battle and everything. But like, and I know, I know it's ridiculous because, of course, he's in his thirties. But I, I am seeing, you know, Hamill is the surrogate yeah. here. Like, you know, he's absolutely, yeah. you know, like, you know, <laughs> last Jedi Hamill here. But like, yeah. I can't see any other he's already the obi-wan yeah he's yeah exactly that's how i see it he's got some talcum powder in his hair he's fine he was always a bit craggy so yes so Venari and rogan and their giant flying acorn journey to this forgotten moon it is vile and dusty it's a shit heap with a chalky surface that may crumble under any footstep plunging the unlucky into chalky traps, immense drops, or straight into nests of bile eels. While attempting to traverse this nasty environment, Rogan and Venari meet a cosmic wanderer marooned on this moon for millennia, a wreath of time, long forgotten by its own kind and now left here to rot, and now it takes the form of a scatty woman with long matted and unkept bed hair. She is rough around the edges and clearly insane, kind of like a mad bag lady. This is Joanna Lumley. Note, she has a kind of a Cockney accent and acts like a deranged bag lady, thus removing all thoughts of her usual posh bint shtick. Calling herself Raff and with ancient wisdom and spunky sass, this, by the way, was the same year as Shirley Valentine, so that's what she looks like, but, you know, fucked up. She is very rude and very quickly tries to betray Vanari and Rogan to steal their vessel, but she has no idea how to work it, is ejected in a comic moment, and she falls into a slime pit of bog crabs. Rogan's all set to leave her somewhat callously, but Venari shows humanity and saves her, pulling her out with a tangled moon branch. With Raph skulking, no, <clears throat> I'll start again. With Raph sulking and freaked out by Flobo and his antics, Rogan and Venari make it to the sacred cave but only the true seeker of knowledge can go in, and that's her, of course. So she, she goes in, she has to avoid traps and so forth, goes deep, deep, deep into the centre, deep into this cave, um, <clears throat> and then answers questions from the voice in the cave, who turns out to be like a smoke thing with a bloody and bulbous deep green heart in its centre, deeping away in its sort of wispy centre. And it is malicious, and when Venari passes the test, it still tries to cheat her and suck her into its wet and sticky soul. Just as Venari seems doomed, Raph emerges, that's lovely, and saves her, fucking up the smoke voice with ancient tricks of her own. So now Venari, armed with the location of the five shards, each somewhere on the five planets, um, including the largest one, which will be somewhere in the Rings of Krull, uh, they all emerge from the cave, um, Venari and Raph, much to Rogan's indignation, who is left behind with scampering and whistling Flobo. So this group now escape the Dust Moon uh, with the info they seek. 
so they now have to travel to the other four planets. Along the way, their vessel is uh, swallowed by a roving larger ship, uh, much larger than their own, and this one looks kind of like a wet, tangled mass of bodily organs, and it belongs to a motley group of space pirates played, amongst others, by Carl Howman, Daniel Peacock, Pete Pothelswaite, Gary Olson, and Paul Whitehouse, with yeah. Jane Horrocks as the scrappy one no one takes seriously and thus has more fight and vim and grit and determination than anyone else, but with the running joke throughout now that no matter what she does and how hardcore she is, how brave or how whatever grim and rank, dangerous and nasty place she will willfully jump headfirst into, the boys still treat her as the half-friend's younger, annoying sister, and mainly because they all secretly fancy her. Um, we also have Paul Reynolds as the Tucker Jenkins' artful dodger of the group, and their captain is perhaps inevitably Robert Lindsay. Uh, once the pirates take the vessel and the prisoners, it is established this old man, weak girl, and crazy hag have nothing of value, and they are to be expelled into space. As the three uh, sit are all tied up, waiting for their fate, Blobo scurries from Venari's pocket and eats through her binds. Venari uses her cunning, wit, and spunk, outwitting, outfoxing, and outmatching this group and their captain. Captain Lindsay, and that's just what I've called him, I haven't given him a name. It could be Captain Grink, but let's just call him Captain Lindsay, is having none of it. But her savvy can't be denied, and Venari strikes a bargain. The pirate captain learns of the shards of power and, of course, wants them for himself. So the pirates take Venari, Raph, and Rogan, and Flobo, with untrusting hostility at first, but they all bond further as they move from one dangerous situation to the next, saving each other's skins as they go, bonding all the way. During this, we cut back to the dark and twisted remains of the Galactic Tree Palace, now moving forward and then into orbit around Kral itself, where Reeson dominates from above. We spend some time with Reeson as he exacts his revenge on the universe for being born. His relationship with Haven Beast continues, which is both mentor, student, father, son. There's a complicated relationship as they are in their own way bonded, but also there are mind games, power plays, and bullying from one to another, the power dynamic remaining fluid. All planets are now subjugated uh, and ruled under this iron grip. Recent the beast in the shade. Uh, the shade's presence is felt, and he kind of appears through like looking glasses and mirages and shit like that, uh, smoke balls. Uh, and he appears like before Recent and the beast, giving orders and further stroking Recent's ego with whispers, whispered promises of further power and revenge. And when we do see the shade, you know, it's in glimpses. He has no fixed form but is rather a shifting mass of blackest oil and moist meat. We catch hints of many eyes of different shapes and sizes, all doing their own thing. Some are red, some bloodshot with green, some like a burst yolk on a congealed egg. It has occasionally an impossible wide mouth with gray and sticky tongue visible within. And this thing, the shade, it expands, it contracts, it pulses, its form is many things, shifting and merging and smoky, holding into itself. It exists in a realm of its own, connected to ours, but remaining separate. As recent slaughters, invades, decimates, and command, the shade purrs as it watches from afar, 
from beyond the galaxy's edge and through a doorway of splintered time. Meanwhile, Venari and her band travel to the four planets to assemble the star crystal. When these are combined, they will uh, grant the power of the planets to the user and align their soul to that of the universe, the ultimate power. So they, at uh, one point, this band, they have to enter a three-dimensional labyrinth deep inside an asteroid. All manner of nasties lurk within. Someone is swallowed by a massive slug, which dissolves him inside. The slime of this slug is highly corrosive, and if it slides over your leg or something, the slime will dissolve you slowly. They appear to be stalked also by a massive minotaur, but Venari refuses to attack this creature until he himself shows signs of hostility. And this, as it turns out, saves them all, as the creature turns out to not be a threat. And they go, joined by this huge and softly spoken minotaur, who of course is probably played by Bernard Breslin, uh, now freed from his duties as guard of the maze and owing a debt to those who freed him. We cut to Lissa as she does clever things in the dark throne court to rally fighters to fight back when the time comes. After the labyrinth planet, they travel to one covered in rivers and oceans of lava. Uh, they journey to the location of the shard, found in the main power source in this giant volcano, a super volcano, king volcano, scorching air, burning rock. Some of the group die horribly, especially Gary Olsen. Uh, the group are trapped in a dead end as lava is slowly moving closer. The group is like there's a little hole in the top and they're jumping and putting each other up through this hole. But poor Gary Olsen is last and he's straining and his feet are scrambling on the on the rocks. Uh, and Captain Lindsay is hanging by his feet from the hole above, like but he can't get a grip on Olsen's hands and stuff. And the lava laps in slowly, first against his feet, then up to his ankles, then his knees, then his waist. And then Olsen just dissolves into it with Lindsay hanging above, watching in horror. Uh, Benari and the group obtain the second segment. Third planet is water. They must go deep into dangerous and teeming oceans. Uh, they're joined uh, by a being from this planet who looks like a massive fish, who, takes, uh, who makes everything he touches very slippery and whose smell is deplorable. And he's a bit of comic relief. Uh, a team of six must then uh, use this sort of breathing device. It's like sucking on a massive squid, and that helps them breathe underwater. They go down to the seabed, and there Venari finds the other shard, um, but the others are picked off along the way down, and others are picked off on the way back up. Uh, lots of horrible fishy monsters. One member of the group has his ankle gripped by a grinning nasty and just drowns. Another is eaten by a massive clam. On the surface, uh, someone is dashed on the rocks over and over again by these very powerful waves. And we just see like the guy hit the rock a few times with this huge like explosion of froth from the waves. And then on like, the fifth or sixth crash against the rocks, the foam turns from white to red as his body is pulverized. And underwater, Paul Whitehouse is eaten by a slimy and nasty fish that bites down hard on his leg like a bear trap and then pulls him down, screaming air bubbles, and he goes down into the fish's thing's mouth as the others grip his arms and try in vain to pull him up, and he goes, and he's gone. I've got Fourth planet. When you, when you first set, sorry to interrupt you, but just for, first, uh, <laughs> when you first set this, one of the things I was most excited about was all of the deaths that you might come up with, Kroll. <laughs> you, you have not disappointed, my friend. <laughs> like, it's <a> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
fourth planet is air, and the shard is found high above the clouds on the peak of the tallest mountain, treacherous drops, etc., Carl Howman is slowly pushed off the edge by a stronger force, sadistically. He's pushing back desperately, but is slowly and surely pushed back, his feet making trenches in the snow, back, back, back to the edge of the peak of the mountains, and then over the edge and down to full screaming for a good 10 minutes. The others look fucked, but Minotaur Man smashes through a dense snowdrift and they escape with the second to last shard. So now we have a moment of positivity. Maybe they might just pull this off. Now the shade really comes into his own. He knows what's going on, he's worked it all out, and he tricks Rogan into becoming impatient and to use a shortcut to get them back quickly to crawl to get the last shard. So Rogan summons the last of his wisdom and power opens a breach, letting the ship slip through straight into the orbit of Kroll. Uh, this is draining Rogan's power. It takes a few minutes to get through the little breach in space-time or whatever. Um, and as Rogan is like fighting to hold the rift open as the vessel is passing through, the Shade himself now, in all his glory, emerges in the ship right in front of Rogan with a big Cheshire cat grin of rotting teeth. It's a bloody trap. Uh, and the Shade um, kills Paul Reynolds and takes the four shards from his corpse. Uh, turns out that Horrocks, Jane Horrocks, was a deeply in love with Paul Reynolds, even though he was the one who was the nastiest and bullied her the most throughout, because she is proper stricken, some good Horrocks acting, crying over the body. The vessel now is uh, slowly is emerging from the rift uh, over in orbit around Kroll, and it's all Rogan can do is just the fight to keep it open, unable to move, because if the rift closes first, it's going to fuck up the ship and everyone will be destroyed. So Rogan is there helpless, shaking and sweating with the immense effort, holding the rift open. And it's a bit like Cyclops holding the door open now, I think about it. Uh, and when the shade now emerges, holding the four crystals looming over him, Rogan looks up at him with defiance. And with Venari now watching helplessly, the shade sucks Rogan into himself, absorbing him and his power and his essence and dissolving him into his centre. Rogan dies horribly. That's it for Hamill. He's fucked. Uh, but it gave the vessel and remaining crew the seconds needed to emerge above the rings of Kron. The shade, the beast and Reeson are uh, aboard the blackened and twisted space tree of death and now they are converging on the near crippled pirate vessel. Uh, but as the death tree is about to collide, Raff, which is Lumley, pulls out a trick of her own, generating the, uh, a last bubble of protection around the vessel, and it and the tree plunge into the rings. And as they do this, Fenari and Lindsay, uh, Captain Lindsay navigate to the correct location within the rings, and they scoop up the fifth and final part of the shard, the, the key part, the largest part. Reesom orders the tree to ram the vessel. Reesom, push it into the rings. We'll collect the last shard from among the dead. Meanwhile, inside the ship, as soon as uh, the death tree starts to crash into them, listen and the, oh, yeah, so it's still inside the tree. Listen and the, the rebels take this moment to uprise, rise up, and fight back. Many shades and eel faces are killed. Traitor Richard Griffiths can now die horribly. Uh, maybe he's pushed out of uh, into the rings as they descend and he's ripped apart. It, you know, that's an alternative. On the pirate vessel, Captain Lindsay pulls a neat trick 
ramming the tree and in turn smashing through to crash and land inside the tree and now protected from the rings as the tree is fucked by the rings as it pull, falls through and then through the atmosphere plunging down onto the planet's surface itself. The ship, uh, tree ship is losing control, going down, 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 right down, as you would imagine, straight into the mountain range containing the royal palace of Kroll and straight into the royal palace's side, smashing through and making a big hole in the wall. And it's, of course, back into Riesen and Veneri's home. So, third act and showdown. Veneri and the rest escape the knackered vessel, get out of the tree and into the royal palace on Kroll. Now, Captain Lindsay and Pete Postlethwaite, who go way back as characters, perform a heist, getting Veneri and some others into the main chamber of, of the death tree, um, near to the shimmering half form of the shade and the four shards. Raff and Lindsay get trapped in a sealed chamber with slime oozing from the walls around them, threatening to envelop them. But the uprising and rebels led by Lyssa explode a wall, storm the hordes, and cause distraction enough to allow them to escape the slime chamber. Lindsay and Possilsway get close to the shards, almost steal them from the, um, the shade, but fail. Possilsway dies. He's grabbed by two eel faces and he's pulled limb from limb. Lindsay and Venari fall back and all is lost but for Horrocks. Turns out, of course, that Jane Horrocks loved Paul Reynolds, even though he was the one who was nastiest her. But now she gets her revenge. She saves Captain Lindsay, allowing him to escape with the four shards. Horrocks is grabbed by the shade, held firm, and then crushed in his wet grasp. So she dies a hero, whispering Reynolds' name as she fades and dies. Shade drops her rag doll body. Lissa and the rebels are holding back the eel faces, etc. When the beast smashes in, he does some damage and is going to kill everyone. When Lissa tricks him into chasing her by taunts and tricks him into the main antechamber, the beast is massive, towering over the room and the tiny figure of Lissa who stands before it now. The beast opens its mouth to fire a deadly energy blast right at her, and it says. Your fate shall be the same as your dead husband, the idiot king. And Lissa stands defiant before him and says, You know nothing of my king or our love. I share with you that now, that which I shared with him, our deep love, our deep power. Let it burn. And she spreads her arms out wide and her hair starts to blow around her, coming from the heat wave, which expands exponentially from her body, a shimmer, which then ignites into a flame as the air around her ignites, and then this flame just spreads like a huge explosion right in the air all around her, and the beast's, uh, the love's flame from her and Colwyn still lives within, and now it erupts all around her, fills the room, and consumes the beast, who screams and is ripped apart, and he dies as Lyssa stands in the centre of the white-hot blaze, totally untouched. All factions now come together, Remaining pirates, etc., versus all the last uh, ravages and so forth. Minotaur stampedes and charges and rams and gorges. And he's doing a lot of satisfying damage to all the nasties. And he is uh, looking to be battered a little bit and he's bloody but victorious when the shade emerges, grabs him by the horns, and they struggle. But the shade exists beyond brute force or physical strength 
and he fairly slowly pulls off the Minotaur's head, killing him. Uh, most others die, but as heroes, Risum and Venari have a final showdown now. He has the glaive, and they fight with a cat and mouse around their old home, first in the throne room, but then Venari takes the fight to the kitchens and the servants' passages, all the downstairs of the palace where she knows and he doesn't. The conflict ends, though, as Venari and Risum go through the smashed hole in the wall of the palace and back into the bowels of the dark tree ship of death. Everything is fucked and crumbling and rotten now, with thick black vines and wooden stalactites emerging viciously from all over. This fight turns brutal now and ends with Risum really badly wounding Venari. He fights dirty and gets the upper hand, standing over Venari. He grabs her front with one hand and holds up the glaive, about to extend the blades and bring them down on her. Suddenly, Flobo emerges from up her sleeve, runs up his arm and bites his glaive hand hard. He yells for a moment, sounding like the child he is, and he grips the glaive, causing the blades to pop out, cutting off his hand. It was bound to happen. Glaive and, uh, and hand fall to the floor and he screams in shock and horror. Benari picks up the glaive as Risum uh, falls to his, her feet, pretty much spent. But in her moment now of victory, she stands over him holding the glaive and he's all cowering in front of her. But she hesitates and she slowly lowers the glaive. When then suddenly the, the shade appears right there and gives her a backhand, fucks her up. She is beyond powerful. It's a casual backhand and she is fucked. Shade regards Reeson's cowering body as he shrieks with pain, clutching his stump. And the Shade says, it seems I chose the wrong child. No matter, this display is over. The Shade uh, demands the last shard of crystal from Fanari. She has no choice and she hands it over. The Shade is victorious and he puts it together, completing the crystal, bringing all five together, all five shards. And uh, now the ultimate power in the universe is his. He laughs in ecstasy as the air warps and the universe bends around him. But this crystal was not designed for him. It comes from the same ancient elements that formed his own creation and was never meant to be wielded by one such as this. So in the moment of his victory, we find out that his greed for power was his undoing. He could have killed Venari and he could have ruled the galaxy through Reason, but his final act of desire to harness the power of the Rings of Thrall and the Crystal of Eternity was what uh, he chose and he is ripped apart by the Force, screaming horribly. Now Lissa gets everyone off the Dark Tree into the palace and just in time, for as the Shade dies, the remains of the Dark Tree start to break apart and fly up into the sky just like the beast craft did. And in the palace, looking back into the death tree, Venaris, uh, Venari calls back to her brother, come on, come back to us. But he's still inside the tree, which is all shaking and crumbling around him, and he's having none of it. And he clutches his bloody stump, and through indignant tears, he screams back at her, I hate you. So Venari watches from her side of the hole in the wall in the palace, as Reesum, on the other side of the hole in the wall in the tree, watches back. He is defiant and furious in defeat, but he is a young boy and he is very scared. His eyes are wide and resolute as he stares at his sister. And she calls his name one last time, 
and then this, uh, the segment of tree that he's standing in breaks loose and it too with him in it flies up into the sky and into space beyond with Reese trapped and screaming. Is he to be frozen or smothered by the vacuum of space? Or is he going to be burnt up in the atmosphere? Or is he going to be absorbed into the planet's rings? Or is he going to survive, to live to fight another day, another time, another sequel? Question mark. Final scene is the remains of Kroll's palace missing its roof and two of its walls, and yet the crowds are jubilant. Lissa stands proud and noble. There's a huge portrait of Colwyn behind her, very tasteful. Venari becomes queen. Before her new kingdom of galaxies, Venari makes Captain Robert Lindsay the general to the galaxy's armies. Raff becomes the new chief scientist and magical guardian, and the remaining survivors are given, given lofty positions and rewards. Venari takes her place on the throne of the galaxy, where she unites all the planets and kingdoms and systems into one front, with no one ruler, but a family of rulers from all walks, all bloodlines, noble or not, to rule in peace forever. And we have a final shot of the heavily damaged but under-repair palace on the hillside, overlooking the beautiful meadows. It's basically the same shot from the beginning. And as we pull out, we have Yanir's voiceover again, and we hear, a son to rule, a daughter to rise. This was the fight. These were the lives that were lost and the souls that were saved. A galaxy united, a darkness destroyed. All under the protection of the warriors of peace, led by the princess of truth from the planet of her birth, beneath the rings of Kroll. And we cut to credits. We have a bit of Horner action and some taglines. We've got three. Uh, the first one, to fight is to win, to win is to love, to love is all there is. Nonsensical, gibberish, seems about right. Second one, a quest of peace, a bringer of death, and the most thrilling adventure in the galaxy. And then the last one, a son to rule, a daughter to fight, an ancient darkness, a crystal of truth, all are to come together beneath the rings of Kroll. So there you go. Maybe. That's a bit of crawl too. A bit of crawl. Sheppy, I have just two words. Well, A, thank you. Bravo and bloody hell and all of that. And so just fuck you, man. Screw you. You said to me, I have it in writing on Facebook, Jimmy, this one's going to be a true pitch. Like I just walked into the Hollywood, you know, studio in and out. You said, Sheppy. Do you know? Good. I honestly thought it was. I was surprised. <laughs> I'm reading this. I'm like, this, this bit's the quick bit and it's taking a while. Ah, colour me impressed. So I, I will I just, say. Oh, you say, you say, sorry. If I may, I aimed for 10 pages. I knew it would run over and. I didn't plan on writing the beginning in such detail, and I knew that, of course, would expand it. But it was 23, so it's still 10 pages left than the two-parts Incredible Hulk. So, <laughs> uh, I don't even know, like, honestly, 
you're going to ask me to cut this, and I'm not going to cut this. And however, but you see, I've got the scissors, so I'm not going to cut this. And you could, you could, I hope you blush and pass me all your wail and crow. Well, exactly. But I, it, behind the scenes, I'm sure I said this to the Sheppy recently. Um, but you know, it's like being friends with Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan knocks on your front door and says, "Come out and play basketball with me." And you're like, "Cool, okay." And then he like does all this trickery, slam dunks, and all this sort of stuff. Then throws you the ball and says, "Have a go." And you're like, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" Like, what am I meant to do to follow that? What am I? Meant to... I'm going to stop answering my doorbell. I tell you what, Sheppy, very soon. But anyway, let me just say that. I don't care. Anyway, listen, man, that was ridiculously good. Just all the detail, even just a, a brand new MacGuffin with the crystals, and then the crystals had a twist of their own, and then just just everything. It's so stressful and wonderful how brilliant that is. Like all the just the detail. Horrocks herself is a great character. I really like the character, and fucking Flobo, whatever. He's he's the Christmas toy of the century. Like, <laughs> and like just, just wonderful. That was a brilliant twist, Sheppy. I'll be honest, that's my favourite bit of the whole pitch is what you, because we, I suppose perhaps without putting too much ego on it, we both went with the same thread of like, you know, the sun will inherit the, but you went down a road that was very exciting and interesting and I really liked all of that. And like you said, in the press, they can't release that. It's got to be chirpy, chirpy, happy, happy. What's it like playing with Pops, Ken, you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we yeah, both totally. have the well, by the way, as well, which is happy. Yours is <laughs> at the end, but that's okay. <laughs> um, um, thank you. That's nice. Um, you may be surprised to learn that Colwyn survived for a very long time until yesterday, in fact. Oh, wow. uh, he was fucked up and he went off into a pod and uh, spent the rest of the film trying to get back. And then he gets back and I knew he was going to turn up and do something. But I'm like, there's nothing for him to do. And wouldn't it be so much more shocking if he did die? And me in 1989 watching this would hate that. You know, like, I've just been on a huge journey with this dude and now you're killing him. I do hate that. I mean, they do this in um Elm Street 4 and everything. Uh, so I'm a hypocrite, but it just, no, it's it like there was nothing for Colin to do. And you've given him a good first act battle first as well. He's okay. He's all right. Ken's happy. It's a good twist in service of the story and all that. Yeah. He's yeah, happy. right. Yeah. And, and I promised him that for the third part, he could come back as a fourth ghost. Nice. Him and Freddie Jones. Yeah. So, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's just, let's, let's just bloody. Yes. All right. Okay, Sheps. Now look, Um. I'll, here we go. I'll, I'll give you my pitch if you're ready, and uh, I, I think this is an appropriate time. I don't think it'll be too much. Just it's it's basically about five pages. Just manage your expectations. Okay, so okay. Mine is called Crawl Two: Galaxy's Edge. Yes. And, uh, colon of Ovs, perhaps Ovs, perhaps not Ovs. Um, and then uh, we've got directed by Ben Wheatley to follow your thing. Oh, nice! The British directors jumping in. Fantastic. Um. 2023. Nice. I love now. that. I would do that stuff. But <laughs> only set about five years after the original. So um, what we're doing is... A, oh, so we've done a flip. Yeah, we've done like a full recast, like, but it's the same characters with contemporary actors stepping into their shoes, which I've never done before, I don't think so. No. Oh, I love his action. <laughs> so we've got uh, Ken Marshall out, obviously. We're not de-aging, really. We've got maybe one moment of de-agement in terms of CGI, but we'll come to all that. Um, but, yeah, but Ken Marshall is out. Um, 
and Benedict Cumberbatch is in as Colwyn. <laughs> Benedict has gone in tights and grave, I've put as Colwyn. Oh, um, wow. Lily Rose Depp is in as Lissa. Um, no oh, need to believe her, because I believe she's an American. But um, and then, um, <laughs> We've got, here's a little bit of a twist of where we might be going, because I love him so much. We've got Alan Armstrong and his son, who I didn't even realise was his son, but I should have known by the shape of the nose, Joe Armstrong, <laughs> both playing Torquil. Um, oh. And um, uh, no longer just leader of the band, it's now protector of the realm of Kroll. Um, he has three key soldiers in his little troop. Um, I guess they're a bit like second tier, a bit like Guardians of the Galaxy, kind of a gang that goes out and sort of sorts out bits and pieces on cross. It's peaceful, but not as, so peaceful. It doesn't require um, talk. We'll still do some bits and pieces here and there. So with that, um, we've got David Batley, your friend, as a child, out, and Steve Coogan <laughs> in as Ergo. Wow. Um, oh, that's perfect. Um, we have uh, Peter Kay in as Rune, <laughs> brother of Coltrane's Rune. So he's oh. <laughs> playing <laughs> character. Yes. <laughs> and we have Titch grown up here a little bit. Um, and that's Tom Holland. Like we're going to be able to get oh. him. Um, as, of course you are. <laughs> as the, uh, the late apprentice. Um, now with a bit of a penchant for engineering. I'll be honest, I can't even remember where I pulled that thread on Sunday morning when I wrote this. But anyway. Um, We've got Bernard Brizzle out, RIP, obviously, um, in the movie and in real life, bless him. But we've got um, Nonso Anozi, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, in as Fell, another Cyclops, and actually leader of the Cyclops troop or family. What is, who is this? What is, is he? So he's, um, he's in Game of Thrones and a few other bits and pieces. He, in Game of Thrones, he's the one who's kind of got a bit of a big ego and... Uh, and is kind of uh, he he flirts with the Queen of Dragons for a little bit, and then gets uh, killed by the dragons. If you if you Google Monso and Ozzy, you'll know who I mean when you see him. He's pretty cool. Nice. Literally, he's a very tall man. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, and then but like you know we we've got some toddler twins coming in to play Bolwyn, son of uh, the uh, Colwyn and, and Lissa, the the heir to the game. Bolwyn. <laughs> I love it. Um, and then we have the voice of another actor that I'll reveal when it comes to it for a, yes. for, a for a force ghosty type moment. As you so, <laughs> um, so we we open Sheffield. We have huge, great big credits, you know, uh, for for Crawl Galaxy's Edge. And then then we have uh, we we open to happy times, joyous times, Sheffield, a party, um, and we are establishing all our new actors uh, for old favourites. And we've got the fifth birthday party of Bolwyn, and. Um, so for our Cumberbatch, uh, Colwyn, and Lily Rose as Lisa there, during this party, they're exchanging smug looks over the medieval <laughs> feast, so they know they're going to be making some fire tonight. No one I'm no. I've literally written that down. And then, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got Ergo Coogan um, is quadrupling down on the slight curmudgeonness of the previous actor. But I can just see Coogan really lay, 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 yes. loving yes. that. Um, but nonetheless, um, he's putting on a magic show for Bolwyn and Chums um, for his little kiddie party. And um, and Boone, Peter Kay, is being his clumsy assistant and knowingly knocking things over to make the kids laugh, which is, uh, and, and Peter Kay's giving it his little Peter Kay titter to the lips as he's mm. and he's frustrating Ergo, who sort of turns Boone into a pig and gets it right. <laughs> he's starting to get pretty good at his power now. Like, and then, 
And I've actually come up with some Sheppy style things you can do with that in, in the heat of a battle, but more on that in a minute. Um, and then, uh, and the kids are loving that shit and they're all giggling. And then, um, and it's all happy. And then Holland's Titch runs into the room. He's been on watch and he points to the window of the castle and the sky is purple and seems to be slowly opening. Um, Torquil, Joe Armstrong, young Torquil, just to be explicit, ceases his carousing and immediately takes charge of the situation. Pantomime stops. Everyone is to man their stations and protect the family. And he runs downstairs to lock the gates. Um, but really, this is so otherworldly, this sort of purple sky, that even by Kroll standards, they are pretty much just powerless observers. There's a small flash of light just visible from this opening in the sky. Could be about 100 miles away. And the light gets larger and larger, and the light starts hurtling towards the castle over the dales and lakes. Torquil, who's now guarding the lower level of the castle, looks up to Colwyn and nods. Colwyn shields his wife in sign, and Torquil just yells, Grace! And the light crashes into the basement of the castle beneath um, Colwyn and the family. Um, and Colwyn makes sure his family's okay, and then Cumberbatch Colwyn heads downstairs. As he arrives, he finds Torquil staggering towards him almost drunkenly. He's kind of incomprehensible, terrified. And uh, Colwyn has to see for himself. And the light has been like a little bit like the ship at the beginning. You know, it's kind of some sort of advancement of that tech that we saw at the beginning. You know, so it's some kind of Krollesque spaceship of some sort. Um, let the set designers handle that one. <laughs> Give it to Meddings. Yeah. Colwyn reaches the wreckage and finds a very badly injured but just about alive Alan Armstrong Torquil from 2023 um, so obviously not their 2023 our 2023 I just yeah. to maybe about. it's their 2023 <laughs> maybe <laughs> um, but I wanted him back because I love him and, um, nice. so, uh, and the reason why young Torquil was so horrified was he saw himself you know so uh, old talks gives the news and the plot and basically we have in a distant future the galaxy is torn apart by interstellar wars. The peaceful planet of Kroll in the future is finding itself on the brink of annihilation. And there's ruthless and technologically advanced destructors led by the malevolent Zarkon. And he's coming for Bolwyn, Terminator style, to kill him before he can defeat him in the future. And it says, my king, they are coming. I cannot stop them. The glaive is the only thing that can stop them. Uh, so obviously, assuming like you know they rescued the guy from the end of the first movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, luckily, it's back, back in that nice <laughs> um, I only got out just before them, and as he says that, there's a big explosion rocks the castle, and of course, Zarkon and his team have followed Old Torquil out and are upon the castle, and we have an identikit almost opening battle for the first movie. All our heroes take part. I've just put some running battle bits and pieces for them. Cumberbatch as Colwyn starts to kick ass with glaive and sword. And with nary a thread ripped of his tights, Ergo um, zips in and out of different creatures. A dove to evade an electric axe saber I've put. He flies over him as the dove and then turns into a tiger the other side and bites him and gores him. <laughs> At one point, we see uh, he sees, Ergo sees a young Bolwyn cornered suddenly by one of the, the invaders. He takes a running jump from his elevated position turns into a hippo in midair and lands on the building. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. The early. Um, the oh. <laughs> I've just put the resulting splat sound in goo is proper R-rated crawl squishy mayhem. Um, but Kevin, all the kids at Regal are going to lose their minds. 
Kay Boone is acting his arse off, not a smirk in sight. And he's really going for it with proper sword swipes to the guts. His seriousness is basically our barometer for the immediate stakes here. So Peter Kay really going for it. And um, Lissa is in on it too. She's now able to manipulate fire as easily as she should have done in the first one to our earlier point. Nice. Her whim, and she's using that to burn up a few of the cats. Um, I love it when this happens, by the way, when you and I pull the same thread and do something like that, you know, sort of <laughs> random. And, uh, that's great. There are some very similar threads in ours. But anyway, so, and then Titch is using all the Holland wiles from, I put Billy Elliot, Spider-Man, the Rihanna <laughs> video on YouTube. <laughs> Your kick. He's being a real gymnast about the place and kicking some ass. Um, I put that uh, Bolwyn is just really basically useless. The kid is just useless in my chip. He's, he's, he's a non-entity, really, where there, there's nothing really about him. He's just there to be protected. Um, I've got old talk with Alan Armstrong, who crushed in his cockpit and we do see those legs crushed. Um, manages oh. <laughs> his crawly-type spaceship, and Kamikaze moves himself into yet another villain gunning for Bolwyn. His cockpit blows up as he pins the villain to the wall, and it's a nice, gruesome sort of moment. And Torquil yeah. is like, um, he's sort of he's doing okay, but he's shocked. He's seen his older self do that as well, so he's even less effectual. But he's sort of he's processing everything as he's trying to sort of battle as well. No one else dies. And funnily enough, I love the collateral damage in your ships. Like, how many people actually bought it? It was amazing, the fellowship. <laughs> um, mine, you'll be surprised. There's really very little in terms of that. But anyway, um, so no one else dies. But um, Zarkon, who appears here, and for me, he looks a bit like Mumra from Thundercats when he turns. And, um, mm. and um, he, he comes pretty close to getting to Bolwyn and actually has the tight cornered. And Titch calls out, the sky is closing. Um, so a bit like Indy, spoiler alert, you know, it's sort of like a fabric in time. You know, they have a window with which they can travel through um, time, these characters. Zarkon um, turns, sees the sky closing, goes to uh, strike Bolwyn. But Colwyn, from across the room, gives it a pure Cumberbatch death stare. And with much better hand-controlling acting by <laughs> um, from his days as the good uh, Doctor Strange, flicks the glaive so that it tears through the air for Zarkon. Zarkon senses the glaive and with his striking motion for Bolwyn, swerves and the boy and puts a hand out to stop the glaive. The daggers sink deep into his palm and uh, Zarkon's eyes blaze red. Cumberbatch holds his stare. The remaining Zarkon troops are retreating for the tear in the sky. Blue blood is oozing from Zarkon's palm and his fingers close over the glaive, still staring down Colwyn. He squeezes, and there is a small explosion of light, and the glaive is destroyed. Very similar to your chances, a bit of a, a red herring. Um, Lisa has managed to um, shepherd Bowen away during all of this. Um, Zarkon snarls at Corwin, and the snarl is cinema shuddering in Dolby Oppenheimer style. <laughs> then <laughs> before it closes. Corwin, Torquil, and the gang run to the ship, and old Torquil... <laughs> Half the villain that he pinned just before his cockpit exploded slides off the front of the cockpit and is just a total burnt husk. Old Torquil is almost a total burnt husk, hunched over at the front of his wheel, um, and there is a jump as he comes back to life. His face is so close. <laughs> I put Imagine Dark Knight Two-Face on both sides, but somehow <laughs> still recognisable as Alan Armstrong and somehow able to wring one last bit of gravitas and plot exposition. 
um, and says, they will return in the future. The sky opens every seventh moon. And Colwyn um, <laughs> says, the glaive, though, Torquil, the glaive is destroyed. And old Torquil dies. All hope seems lost. And they sort of, the heroes sort of are kind of then, I guess, pondering what to do for the seventh moon. Perhaps then I'd just say, maybe it's the next moment. Maybe there's a couple of little mini scenes here. But, but um, Colwyn lost, wondering what to do without the glaive suddenly hears the, the force ghost voice of Yanir. And this is not going to be Eddie Jones, regrettably, because he's uh, no longer with us, but Ewan McGregor speaks to Cole and Obi oh. doing a, I guess, an Eddie Jones. Um, and so, Freddie. Yeah, I thought, why not? Oh, Freddie. Yeah. Didn't I, Jesus? There we go, chaps. That's all with pure coffee. Um, so the glaive <laughs> was forged of two, and there is another, the cosmic glaive, the most powerful in the galaxy. And only one woman knows where the glaive is, and that is the Maiden of the East. And Colwyn tells the group, and the group is suddenly terrified because no one goes east of the Nebula Sire. Anyway, of course they go east of the Nebula Sire. So, um, <laughs> so they're, they're including Lisa. They're not taking the kids. The kids staying behind, being guarded by the, the castle. Um, and they run what's known as the Nebula Gauntlet. And the team, it's basically the swamp scene again. The team have to go float navigate through a treacherous anti-gravity nebula filled with unpredictable gravitational fields and volatile gas pockets so the idea is like they're floating through it um, and if they trigger the wrong patch they actually get pushed into the air and the place is surrounded by big tall trees and if you get north of the trees you actually drift into the atmosphere and you can't be drawn back it's too powerful and you slowly balloon and then explode basically <laughs> And um, and they 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 rely on Ergo to turn into a bird and fly over quickly and trigger pockets to make sure they follow a clean path. Um, so a straight copy of this one scene with a red shirt caught, of course, and a near heroic rescue. Um, Cumberbatch at the pointy end, exactly the same dynamic of the human chain, um, with the view of trying to pull the red shirt back in um, before he breaches the trees. They think they're going to make it. The fingertips slip and the red shirt floats up past the trees. He starts to laugh with the lack of atmosphere and oxygen. He just kind of triggers that. He's loving it and starts to zip around. Clears the trees. <laughs> Titch can't look. Tom Holland turns away. And of course, the guy takes <laughs> Willie Peanuts. Um, they reach the Maiden of the East, who shows them a portal um, through a tunnel of skeletons. So she kind of creates this portal. We see the passage that will be a tunnel of skeletons, fallen people trying to get this cosmic glaive. Um, and then we reach the point of like this sort of vision that the Maiden of the East is conjuring for them. And it's just a shaft of light where one might expect the cosmic glaive to be hovering. And it is empty. And another has already claimed the cosmic glaive. And um, and Colwyn says to the the, um, the Maiden of the East, who else has been through here? And the Maiden says, I cannot say. This has been my only true entrustment after I abandoned my last. And Lisa picks up at this and says to the Maiden of the East, Mother? <laughs> <It's so strange. laughs> I'm pretty sure we don't see her mother in the original. I couldn't no, remember. No, no, definitely no, certainly not. You don't so see we've got another abandoned child moment with a with a, a, a cocooned, um, you know, witch-style character. Um, <laughs> And I was wondering whether maybe the Maiden of these could be played by a heavily prosthetized Lisa Anthony as a cameo. Um, oh. and, um, and anyway, in their reunion, Lisa presses her fingers to her mother's temples 
and takes all of her memories and perhaps some flashbacks to the abandonment, etc. At the end of this, both women collapse, but Lissa has managed to see that Fell, the leader of the Cyclops, has the cosmic glaive, and he was the one that um, braved wherever it was hidden and managed to get it first. Um, so Colwyn is all about, like, you know, let's get to the Cyclops right now. Perhaps really brutally, like, Lisa is there, collapsed, potentially near death, but he's like, right, get to the Cyclops, you know, even thinking about it. <laughs> I just thought of that. But anyway, so anyway. It's not, the, it's, it's the not closing the eyes when you steal the necklace, Marina. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> and Tulkul is like, my king, Rel was an exception. The Cyclops do not recognize you as their king, you know. And Colwyn's like, we must make peace with the Cyclops. Well, I will, 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 will arrange it as a state visit, you know. And um, and Torquil's like, but Lisa is too weak. They will see through any state visit. She cannot go with you, my king. And Ergo suddenly perks up and transforms into Lisa, the princess. <laughs> so the plan is for Colwyn and Ergo, disguised as Lisa, to go to the Cyclops as a state visit to get them on side. And of course, nice. lots of comedy for Coogan and like, don't get any ideas, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I've got some good acting by Depp. <laughs> you can really go for it. <laughs> So they travel to the area of Draxus, just made it up. That's where the Cyclops originate and nice. introduced to their leader, Fell, who's our man Nonzo. Um, now there's comedy here where they're playing nice to start with. They arrange a dinner to welcome their new guests, a dance, a tradition in Draxus that we must dance with one another's partners. So um, as Fell is introduced to Ergo, Lisa says, Enchanté, you know, and then... Corwin gives him, gives her the him, her him, Coogan, whenever the evils and a shush sign. Mm. Of course, Ergo has two left feet, um, and <laughs> leading fell to remark, "My lady, one would think it was I with both eyes." You know? But uh, anyway, uh, we have all of this <laughs> stuff, and you know, maybe really, um, the enchanté is very broken because he, I, I could, I wouldn't even know whether Ergo could take the voice of somebody as well. They don't have a Mission Impossible strip, so anyway, who knows? Perhaps just has to keep Stum the whole time. Most importantly, all of that shenanigans aside, the Cosmic Glaive is um, as an issue raised and changes the mood of the visit immediately. Um, and if he wants to lay claim to it, Colwyn must battle Fell for the Glaive to the death. And so the pair have a fight. Um, electric Saber-ish nunchucks, I've put. The two of them have them in a modest arena. Um, it's very tight, very spectacular. Um, and of course, Fell basically has Colwyn's number for most of the fight, given his size and reach and all that sort of thing. Of course, inexplicably, though, Colwyn wins, has him pinned and gives it the join me and they form an alliance. Um, the cosmic glaive looks exactly the same as the original glaive. And Colwyn remarks on this in a slightly puckish, arrogant way. And Fell just shakes his head. Ooh, what could possibly be? Anyway, so, uh, the key thing <laughs> still outstanding, though, is where did this purple rip in the sky originate? And how can they be ready for Zarkon when he returns on the seventh moon? No one knows. It was about 100 miles away from the castle, but it could be anywhere. The clock is ticking. They don't want to use the, the boy, Bowen, or whatever as bait. So during a group meeting, um, Ergo, uh, <laughs> oh God, so they're having a group meeting. I forgot I did this. They're having a group meeting and um, and to, to discuss how they're going to do this. And Ergo turns up at the meeting as himself. And Colwyn, to explain this, overdoes it. 
and gives it that, oh, I, I, I sent Lisa back to the castle to go and look after Baldwin. And this is Ergo, who's just ridden here from the castle to join us. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and perhaps it's got really close, sort of note shit and Georgina style, um, with, with regards to Fell potentially going for uh, for Colwyn's missus. But um, but Fell's like, how did how did this Ergo man know we were here? And, and Ergo gives it an enchanté. And then and <laughs> all that sort of, oh, God. Um, anyway... <laughs> After the moment, in the moment of desperation, um, not knowing what to do, Colwyn cries out and the voice of McGregor returns, when you are lost, where, where are you to be found? And Colwyn whispers to himself, the desert of illusions. And this is a vast desert where there are first hallucinatory mirages and then a huge standstorm. And then at the very centre, the tear will re reopen and reappear. So this is far too ridiculous, Sheppy. Um, but there are some fun hallucinations for the whole gang as they navigate the desert <laughs> together. Um, each of them tempt our heroes. So I've just put like these are all stupid rubbish and to be binned and rethought. But Titch sees a little doggy, not a puppy this time. A real, I said little, nice. real big German Shepherd woof of that. When he touches, mm. it turns just to sand. Argo. She's a beautiful woman. I don't know. Um, Boone sees an abandoned campsite with a beautiful roast pig on a spit left behind. Okay, <laughs> salivating lips as well, which of course turns to sand as well. You do a, a Chevy, or or really a, <laughs> yeah. a, a Martin Short. <laughs> yeah, turns to sand. Oh, poor old Peter Kay. Anyway, having an act. Um, Bell. Uh, Oh, Fell sees the cosmic glaives that have fallen out of Colwyn's possession and a chance to maybe take it back. Um, Torquil sees himself older, still traumatised by that. And there's a big acting moment from Joe Armstrong where he laments some big life misses and what it all means, maybe, um, as he approaches the older self and then that turns to sand. Colwyn um, sees Lisa and Baldwin. He thinks that they are there with them and shouldn't have come. And, I, and then, of course, then they said the same. But I thought, I know, this is ridiculous, Sheppy. It'd be amazing to have an Abbott and Costello um, moment. And, um, if you, you remember that, I think it's, I'm sure it's Abbott and Costello. They're going through the desert and then they've seen all the mirages and then they see this amazing looking restaurant with like, you know, free drinks. Like, it must be a mirage. It's actually a carry on, speaking of Breslau. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's a carry on for sure. Maybe it's Albert and they've ripped it off, but. I've seen it in a carry-on. <laughs> we should never have opened this joint out here, that kind of thing, you know, and all that sort of yes. stuff. Love it. But maybe imagine that, like he's like Lisa Baldwin. No, no, it's a mirage. But it really is them. <laughs> then she gets killed because she's been abandoned and left. Anyway, that's stupid. <laughs> that's um, but as they disintegrate, uh, Lisa and Baldwin, um, the sandstorm is upon them. The troop nearly lose one another. The tear starts from the storm and within a minute is filling the sky. Zarkon is back with more troops than before, a galactic battle. And at the battle's death, Colwyn lets rip with the cosmic glaive and it stops midair. And Colwyn keeps up his hand gesture, gestures, even though he has no idea what's coming next. Just to look like <laughs> oh, the blades extend into swords at least three feet in length each. The glaive then turns on its side, so it's portrait rather than landscape, a super sharp, huge tire, and fires straight through Zarkon, cutting him in half between the eyeballs, nipples, and other balls. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's basically the end of the movie, Sheppy, ridiculously. That's, that's how much bloody thought I put into that battle, sorry. Um, but then, um, so the only um, sort of things to let you know 
uh, that um, Phil sacrifices himself during the fight. Cyclops style must have seen his own fate at some point. Um, and Boone loses an arm in the battle. Wow. And they saved, head for the castle. And when we get the end of this, uh, the end of the movie is then the postponed kid's fifth birthday party and an outrageous ending where Boone, who's been using his fake arm as part of his new act for the kid's birthday party, then has to try and get it back from a British ball when he's running around the castle with it. Kay, exasperated, stops running, poop, and says to Colwyn, Sire, would you ask for it back for me, please? And Colwyn just says, relax, Boone, it's just a bit of armless fun. And there's a little small polite chuckle from the troop who are with him. And you were kidding about the ho-ho-ho. Oh, it gets worse, chaps. And then t- <laughs> Old Tom Holland's titch says, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that wasn't your best King Corwin. And Corwin just sort of doesn't get this part and just says, well, who could best it? So that really serious. And Lisa just says, actually, darling, technically, he just, uh, a talk will tap it, <laughs> um, just taps his lip and says, I'm kind of stumped by that. And ergo, just as a little silent point of acknowledgement. But Colwyn's just not getting these extra puns. And, uh, <laughs> and says, Come on, you must be able to think of a better one. I have a whole army. And the gang sort of thinks, well, you must know you can't like that. So they all sort of like start, you know, laughing and that sort of thing. And Cumberbatch doesn't even know he's punned, doesn't even get that he's punned. And sort of everyone's ho ho hoing. So he kind of joins in a bit confused. I mean, it's the most ridiculous ho 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 as you can see. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the best. Oh, I can see him so much like laughing, but obviously, again, a bit of a chevy, not really knowing what he's laughing at, and sort of then sort of going for it, but then looking confused again during the whole pullout. And maybe oh. one fits in as a 1.5 before you were two because that kid is so horrible running around with the arm. I mean, he could be, yes, yeah, nice classic, but anyway, Jimmy. You say words like Jordan and follow and ball <laughs> and net. But no, no, look, all I'm going to say is this. That was great. It was great. It was fun and brilliant. And the hippo, Jimmy, the hippo. <laughs> absolutely. I can see it. And it's amazing. And yes. It's real fun to be had in animal escapades like that. You know, real fun. Yes. Real fun. Oh man. I want a whole TV show called Man of Escapades. Because <laughs> that's great. Ah, uh, Jimmy, wonderful. Really, seriously. Well, it was a fun you one. I really enjoyed doing them. this one. And I, I enjoyed mm. the work and everything. Well, Sheps. Great. I'm so glad because, yes, as much as I do like setting weird ones, I do want you to enjoy it. So I'm glad you, it wasn't a train wreck. So listen, young man, order of business. The next one. The next one, Shoulders of Giants will return. This is a funny one, right? This can go in lots of ways. And I, yeah, I, I already have a view on where I'm going to go with it. So I will I will share that with you now too. So I, I would like, Sheppy, I would like, and this is like, the, the gates are open. The gates are open. But I want a Superman movie. I want a oh. Superman movie from you, Sheppy. And that can be anything you like you can cast whoever wow. you like as superman you could go back and do a different superman three if you wanted to and co- close the donners you could wow. build a man of steel you could do a dean kane movie if you bloody want yes i was thinking that <laughs> you like do a dk movie so you, you can do whatever you like i 
will tell you my heart i thought this the other day and i thought well my heart is like i i'm going to do a new standalone i think so i'm not going to close any cappers or anything i'm just going to you know do a a surrogate what james gunn is probably pouring over right now you know but, but effectively like that sort of vibe um that's where i think i'm going just if that's helpful but but, but most importantly you can do whatever the heck you like Sheppy, with that. wow man so um yeah i think actually we should do this we should do this we should do that's this. that's amazing oh, brilliant great well it's not going to be black adam versus henry cavill although i wasn't against it but I'm, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do, um, but I'm very excited to find out what we're both going to do. That's wonderful. Good for you. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes I think I might know what you're going to say based on like your your build up, and I'm never right, ever. <laughs> I didn't really have any idea in this particular case, but I certainly wasn't thinking Superman. That's wonderful. Up and up and away and all of that. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, nice. Now... Oh, yeah. I suppose the only order of business is how do we close this bad boy out? Uh, it's it's a mystical one. It's big. It's fun. It's beautiful. It's gory. It's disgusting. It's violent. Well, I don't know what could possibly sum up anything after that. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like I was building up to something. I really uh, thought you were. I was going to try yeah. and oh, 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 I don't know how to do that either. Like, you know, just... <laughs> No, it's awkward. It's very, very awkward. Uh, I'll tell you what, let's see. Uh, I don't know, it, it's a glaive day. Uh, no, um, it's, a, let's, it's, a, it's a beast of a headache, trying to think of something like this. Oh. I don't know, Jimmy. Uh, I guess we'll just have to both remember the waffles. Oh, yes. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at shoulderspod.com or shoulderspod at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.